the flash, I saw this grenade. I'd see it and it would disappear in the darkness. And then it hit my shoulder. And I remember like distinctly thinking, please let the grenade detonate below my head. It, it detonated. And it just felt like someone took a big handful of rocks and just like threw it at, at my the back of my legs and my, my back. Navy SEAL training offers you this great chance to kind of like reset who you are. Because whoever you were before you became a SEAL gets replaced with the person who becomes a SEAL. Thank you so much for coming on the Iced Coffee Hour. You got me through several plane trips oh, on yeah? the way here to Austin. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I've been downloading your videos and just listening to them all the way through. They're incredible. Thank I you. I mean, your ability to storytell is impeccable. Some of the stories that you pick are just like, it It, it screws with my mind a little bit. It puts me in a trance-like state when I'm watching yeah. your videos. Time just goes by like this. <laughs> and I'm not just exaggerating. Like, you are the channel that I binge told my mom about, she binges it. Told my brother about, he binges it. It's they're like huge, you can't watch fans. three nice. and not want to watch 10 more. It's crazy. Well, thank you. It's so funny. Like there's lots of people ever since I started making content that will say, you know, I, I binge your content. I share it with friends. They mm -hmm. binge it. Uh, and there's nothing that I'm doing that is designed to do that. It's just like the, the natural way that I comprehend stories and tell them. Yeah. Like the way I told stories in the first video is very similar to how I tell stories now and how I'm talking to you right now. It is literally how I speak. But it's some crazy yeah. skill. Now this is a, <laughs> a bit of a tangent, but in conversation with people throughout your entire life, were people always just completely th like enthralled in it? Were they just like, <laughs> could you see like a trance-like trans state when you're just talking to them? <laughs> what um, is it? You must have been good with this for a long time. I would say that I've, I've known that my superpower of sorts is my ability to tell a story. I've known that for a while. Um, namely because I, I used to, I used to run, I, I was a co-founder of a charity that helped veterans get jobs. I'm sure we'll dive into all sorts of yeah. stuff, but the short version is I periodically would need to give, you know, little talks at dinner to raise money and, and just like little public speaking engagements. And I was really nervous about doing them, but I discovered if I put whatever I needed to say into story format, suddenly it was like my brain was just, it relaxed and I could very easily take the stage and talk if I was telling a story. And so from the time I was like, I don't know, mid twenties, I knew that like, if I was ever gonna do any public speaking, just turn it into a story and you'll be fine. Uh, and then just generally speaking, it's just the one thing I knew is that I can, I can retain huge amounts of information if I can put the information into a story in my head. Yeah. So, and, I, and for background, my, my father is an incredible speaker. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. My, my sister is as well. Bunch of writers and speakers and very talented people in my family. So I'm sure they kind of, it rubbed off yeah. on me speaking and storytelling. What was that like for you growing up? Did they set really high expectations for you? Yeah, so I, I grew up in uh, just south of Boston, Massachusetts in a town called Quincy. Not to be confused with Quincy as it looks. If you're <laughs> yeah. from the Wait, area, it's Quincy. Quincy. Q-U-I-N-C-Y, Quincy. Q -U -I -N -C -Y, Quincy. Uh, so yeah, my, my family were, they're, they're very educated, very smart people, like very academically minded. And so growing up, the, you know, the success was doing well in school and going to a good college. And I just like, didn't want to do that. Cause I felt like I, I didn't want to do what my family was doing. Like my, my rebellion was, I'm going to do, I'm going to do something else. I'm not going to be like an academic. But my rebellion was like, just being a bad student and like not but trying. Why did you want to rebel in the first place? <laughs> I, I don't even know. I, to be honest, like from the time I was young, I just, I, I, 
I think I think I have like a problem with authority if I'm being okay, candid. So does this guy. So does oh, this guy. guy. Yes, you <laughs> do, Grant. Don't act like you don't have a problem against. I want you to go always to have a problem with authority. I do. It's, it's okay. Work. I think it's a it's good trait. It's taking you very far. All right. I think it's something to be proud of. I, I for me, yeah, I think that I didn't like the idea of conformity and mm-hmm. like. You know, in a way, like my my parents and my family's kind of like push to be a good student and to succeed in academia, like I didn't like the idea that I was kind of being pushed to do that, even though it's a perfectly sensible yeah. and very respectable path. And so I just naturally was like, I don't want to do that. And so I, my rebellion was being a bad student. So but it didn't get me much. Did part of you think like, I should listen to my parents or was it just like, ah, you know, I, I know what's best for me. Like, ah, dude, I was, I was so dumb. Like just, I, I made so many bad decisions all the way through like the time till I was like 19. I like, from, from like the ages of like 16 to 19, I just like blew up my high school career. Just like, how tra- so? Like, what would you do? Well, getting in trouble, you know, like, like out on the streets with my buddies, like stupid stuff. And like, you know, <laughs> Anything serious or just like no, no, not, not, well, nothing we, on my we, record. We do know you got into a little bit of a scuffle, right? <laughs> yeah, a little bit of a scuffle. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. So like my, my fame in your first fight. Oh, so <laughs> my, the, my big first fight. So I, uh, when I was a sophomore in high school, uh, well, actually you, you get the context is key. So in Quincy, uh, street fighting is, is a big deal. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a, a rite of passage uh, in Quincy. It's not like no one's beating each other up to the point where you're like badly hurt. It's, it's truly like scheduled, like bare knuckle boxing fights that, that end with people getting up and like shaking the hand of their opponent type of thing. Um, and so I, my group of friends in Quincy were like notoriously tough. They were like the guys that like won these street fights. And I was like, I, I didn't get in street fights, but I was around the guys that did. And so I kind of earned a, I, <laughs> I was given a reputation for being tough as well, even though I, I really wasn't. I was like just a strap hanger, like with the other guys. Um, and then at some point uh, in my sophomore year, I was one of my periods in school, I was like in a study hall with this girl named Sarah, who was friends with my sister, my older sister. And I just like sat with her, I talked to her during study hall. Uh, But it turns out her boyfriend took exception to this. He thought that I was like hitting on his, on his girlfriend. Uh, Were there I, any flirty thoughts? No, no. I mean, may, maybe if you're. Did like you find her attractive? Uh, no, like she was just like my sister's <laughs> friend, you know. Okay. And and so I found out through the grapevine that Paul was really upset with me. That's the boyfriend. Yeah. And he's he challenged me to a fight. And you you must accept there. It is like you know you'll be outcasted if you don't. And so I'm like, you couldn't just apologize. Like, hey, man, <laughs> no, no, nothing. There was no attempt. <laughs> there made was no apologizing. To, to no. like smooth this over. I could have just been like, bro, like I wasn't doing anything. But yeah. instead I was like, time to defend my honor, time to live up to my, like my reputation of being a tough guy. And so it was, uh, it was right around Thanksgiving and the scheduled fight with Paul was the day before Thanksgiving. And there's this huge, uh, like the, the girls from the, uh, so I went to North Quincy high school and then there's Quincy high school. These are rival high schools, right? Big rivalry. And the girls from my high school would play this flag football game against the Quincy high school girls, but it like quickly turned into like really aggressive tackle football. And it was a whole spectacle. Yeah. But also at this like illicit football game that's happening that's totally unsanctioned, there would be all these like scheduled fights between the two schools. Mm. Like it, it's a whole thing. It's a whole culture in Quincy. Um, and so my fight with Paul was like the equivalent of like the what's the it's what's the, the, the main top card? The, the main <laughs> card for this day. Dylan Gantt, <laughs> yeah, Paul, exactly. yeah, got it. All right. And so I. Uh, 
this was like weeks out too. It was like two, three weeks uh, before this fight. And, and I remember I was like I w- in my basement of my house. I had like a, an office chair and I'd like spar the office chair, like get ready for this big <laughs> fight against Paul. Uh, and then the day come uh, leading up to this, yeah. like in school, like in North Quincy High where I went, like people were very aware of this fight. They were like, how do you schedule a day and a time with this person? It's like, how does I don't that even know. Do you it communicate just so with natural. Like <laughs> but how do you do it like, weeks in advance? Like, well, yeah, it's like, I'm so like, mad at you. In three weeks, we're going to fight. Yeah, yeah, you know, by like, then, I just wouldn't care anymore. I'd be like, Yo, I, you know, I cooled down a little bit, my bad. <laughs> but, but so leading up to this this fight in, in the hallway, like walking around the high school, like people would come up to me and be like, hey, man. Like, you, you'd be cool to Paul, man. He's the captain of the hockey team. I don't want you to hurt him. Because people thought I'm, like, this really tough guy because the guys I'm around. And so I was, like, totally playing into it. I'm like, yeah, I won't hurt him. <laughs> I'll try to be nice to him, like, yeah. acting all tough. And then finally the day comes, and we go out to this field where this, this fight's going to happen. And remember, like, lots of people are at this location for this girls' football game. There's other fights that are scheduled. Uh, and so I get there, and I straight up have, like, a posse with me. Like, 50-plus people have, like, come to support me. These are, like, my guys. And I'm lit- I could, like, see myself. It's so cringy. I'm, like, standing in the field, like, literally shadow boxing, getting ready for Paul to arrive. And, like, I'm there pretty early, you know, ahead of the fight, the scheduled mm-hmm. fight time. And the, the time he was supposed to be there rolled around and he wasn't there. And I'm and, and so I was like, oh, I guess Paul's afraid of me. That was my whole narrative. And I'm like telling other people there, like, dude, Paul's he's so pathetic. He's afraid of me. Again, I'm like shadow boxing yeah. still in the middle of the field. And everyone's like, man, John's gonna kick this kid's ass if he ever comes here. And then Paul shows up like 30 minutes late, no posse. I think he had like one dude who like rolled up with him. And Paul walks up the hill and I, I see him coming to me and everyone's like, oh, here we go. Here, here comes the fight. And I have this line that I drop. <laughs> he gets close to me and I'm like, whoa, we're young, motherfucker. As if it had taken him so long, like you're going to make me yeah. wait. <laughs> and he comes up to me and proceeds to beat the out of what me. was his first move? What do you do? He tackled like, me to the ground. Like, oh, ta- took me to the ground. You expecting a tackle. No, I'm like stand up fight? fighting. And he, he beat the shit out of me in front of like, not only my school, but the entire rival school. There was like hundreds of people watching. And I like woke up and everyone's like, you got knocked the fuck out. And I'm like, oh, all right. Did you get a punch in? Did no, you get nothing, anything? Nothing. Just completely So it was just like, you were just a rag doll. You were his punching bag. Completely. That was it. Yeah, he showed up and just beat me but, up. Okay, but that, the, the things that that has to do to your confidence. I mean, Didn't like... Didn't help. <laughs> like, I, I cannot imagine one thing that would destroy my confidence and just will in yeah. general more than just getting beat up like that. Especially after everyone's, like, hyping you up and you're friends with all the tough guys, you oh, know? Yeah. Like... It was, it, dude, did you, it was, like, it was break really a nose or lose teeth. Or I, I looked or like, horrible. Yeah. Well, I didn't have any like structural damage done okay. to me, but it was like the classic, like double black eye look like he got beat up kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, honestly, it was so, it was so absurd the way it happened yeah. be, because really because of that line. Like it would have been okay had I not said the <laughs> line. Famous line. But you weren't expecting him to tackle you. That's a move that you can't really. That's predict. true. That's true. That's true. Uh, but so I remember, like the after the fights, like days after, I'm like in school, and like literally, my teachers would say the line to be like, "Hey, John, while we're young, motherfucker." No. <laughs> my actual teachers. How do they encourage this? It's it's a culture. No, I'm telling you, it's really. a culture within Quincy. It's like street fighting is is a thing, and like everybody knows about it. But uh, in a way, it was it was actually a good experience. It's funny now, but yeah. it, it was good because it's like one, it shows you that you can't parade around like a tough guy if you're not. 
or you should have like serious protection around you. Uh, but also like it, it just put me in check. I, 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 I had come to believe that I was like truly, you know, a street fighter. I'm sure. a tough guy. Uh, but I was not. And it was, it, it, it humbled me. I think it was good for me. But then you compensated for that in basically like the largest way possible, <laughs> yeah. becoming a U.S. Navy SEAL. Like yeah, that's not yeah. just like, you know what I mean? Guy gets beat up at school. Oh yeah, check this out, Paul. <laughs> Navy SEAL, years of training. Yeah. What's up now, Paul? Well, we're old, mother. Like, yeah, you could go old. in and just uh, like, would you fight him today? If he offered you a rematch? I mean, probably not. No, I wouldn't even be wouldn't fair. I've like trained how to do it now. <laughs> <laughs> See him at the reunion, just like shoulder just, check him. We actually, you know? we, we talked somewhat recently. I, I hadn't talked to him since like the, the fight, you yeah. know, since I was like 17 years old. But he actually watches my YouTube channel. No and so like we've way. actually talked and he thinks it's hysterical. <laughs> he, he watched the video that I posted on my channel that oh, talks no about way. this. Talks about and he thought it was hysterical. Yeah. So that's amazing. Yeah. So what led you then after that fight to then? going in the Navy SEALs. I'm sure there's a lot that happened in between. Sure. I think that there is some truth to like that moment as kind of goofy as it was, you know, and kind of funny as it was. It, it very likely did like spurn something inside of me to like, okay, you, you got to do something to like make up for this in, mm -hmm. in a way. Um, but like, you know, for, for the rest of high school, I, I really, I really was just like kind of not taking school seriously. I, I really wasn't even pursuing college as an option. I actually only got into college because my mother, who was a professional writer, she wrote my college essay and it was like, it was so good. <laughs> like the college contacted me to be like, you know, you're not a traditional student, but my goodness, that essay was something else. You're in. I <laughs> so I got to go to, I got to, go to she, school. How is she okay with that? She well, did, she knew. She's like, well, John's not going to do it. I'd like, I'd put off doing the application. Yeah. I was like, I was a terrible student with no motivation, you know. And so she felt like if I can, if I can just get him in the door. Do he'll, you he'll, remember what the essay was about? Yeah, it was about, um, so I had a very close friend of mine who passed away, not <laughs> to turn this into a dark conversation, yeah. but it was basically about like my last interaction with him before he ultimately overdosed. And so it was like a very poignant essay written by somebody else about my experiences. But it, it was it was like a very powerful essay that clearly spoke to the admissions board. And then they let me in. Wow. And then I promptly, in my first semester in college, have been given this golden ticket, John. Here you go, go to college. Uh, and I, I think it was like I had 36 violations of just bad behavior. Nothing significant, all minor. 36? Noise violations, like leaving trash in the hall, like just being a, a stupid kid in college yeah. that's not taking anything seriously. I had a, at the end of the first semester, I've been telling my family that I was getting like all B's and A's like, oh, going to the library all the time doing so well grades come out 1.016 oh, GPA wow. <laughs> and they found out about my GPA yeah. at the same time that the dean got alerted to how how badly behaved I was because I, I had apparently crossed a threshold of a certain number of like write-ups in your dorm the 36 somewhat write-ups Apparently you cross a threshold and it goes to the dean and they have to like review whether or not you can stay in school. Yeah. And so I found out that I, I had a 1.016 GPA and the dean contacted my parents to be like, your son is very likely going to be kicked out of housing. And there was also a riot at, at the school I was at because our football team that nobody cared about lost the, the big game that nobody cared about. But it was an opportunity for the students yeah. to riot. 
about the game we didn't care about. And so there's this huge riot that, that takes place on campus. And I, I really didn't do anything in the riot, but I didn't go in when all the police are like running by shooting rubber bullets at us. They I were just, shooting like, rubber bullets? <laughs> full riot. How do you stop You're, a riot? <laughs> full it's, it's riot. That's a, that's a riot. Okay, because that's like different. Tear gas than, and stuff, right? It, it was, yeah. oh yeah. Like, rubber bullets. I, put it this way. I got shot so many times by rubber bullets that there were rubber bullets in my pockets just out of the- You're like, kidding. I got hit everywhere, but I got hit enough, Did that enough hurt? time. Yeah. What does it feel like? <laughs> it hurts. What, what does that feel like? Uh, I was- it, 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 It's like a sting? I, I don't even remember. It, I remember it stung, but you're like, you're so jacked up. You're like, this is so much fun, like running around from the police. So, so what, what was the riot like? Were you guys like breaking windows and like, you know- It was like, what was it? I mean, yeah, there, there was some window breaking for sure, but it was mostly like this mass of people. So there's- so the school I went to is UMass Amherst. It's out in Western Mass, mm. and it's they call it Zoo Mass Slamhurst. Okay. It's like a complete party school. <laughs> and like, there's definitely an attitude within the school. Uh, and there's like thirty thousand undergrad students, and nearly all of them live at UMass. So it's mm. like this huge population of students that are in this part of Massachusetts that's like very rural. Like this is it's like a city. It's like a city of these kids that are like at a party school. Nice. And there's like a. a a sort of culture amongst the students to like just rage and be wild like at all times and rioting has been a thing at the school in the past it's not like a new phenomenon like anytime like the red Sox would lose like a, a big game there'd be a riot at umass amherst like that would make the news and, and really all it is is the students would pull into the middle of this area called southwest it's like there's yeah. these different housing areas on camp huge campus but Southwest, they have these towers, these 26 story tall towers that the students get packed into. I was in one of these. And I think it's actually literally the most densely populated area in the entire country, like per foot, is UMass Amherst Southwest area. Uh, but th these 26 story tall towers all closely clustered together. And then in the middle, there's like this paved courtyard. People just wouldn't go to bed, basically. They just stayed mm. out like <clears throat> yelling and screaming. It's the middle of the night, you know? Mm. And what started is like, all right guys, time to go to bed. Like no one did. And then the, the riot lights came on. There's like riot lights set up on That campus. sounds like they're asking yeah. for it. But that it, sounds like it turned everyone's it into, like, a into a riot. The riot <laughs> yeah. lights come on. We're rioting that, right now. That was Reminds really what it the was. Jerry Springer, the ding, ding, ding. And they just go to fight. Like, <laughs> the lights that come on. It's like, oh. But yeah, the riot lights came on and it like, it riled up the crowd completely. Uh, and so there wasn't like, it, there was really nothing other than like, we wouldn't disperse. And so like the, the school is accustomed to these riots taking place where like lots of damage has been done in the past. And so they were like full send like riot police on, on you know, horses, like everything. So anyways, uh, I was just out for the bulk of the time. Like I was one of the last people, like a shirt wrapped around my head to fight off the tear gas that's like clouded in the air. <laughs> Uh, and I'm like, oh, cool, went to bed, like no big deal. And, and then it turned out like the school was super intense about figuring out who was a part of this riot and they have cameras everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so they, they set up this website, the, the UMass police, where they just posted all these pictures of just random people who were out during the riot and anyone could anonymously say who was in the picture and they would get like expelled. And I was in all these pictures <laughs> and I've made so many enemies at the school already just from being a nuisance in my dorm yeah. that like, I'm about to have a meeting with the Dean, with my father, who's just found out I'm failing completely at school. I told him I was getting good grades. I also have to break the news that I'm almost certainly gonna be expelled if I get named by one of these pictures. Uh, and I have like these horrible grades. So it's just a really pathetic situation I had completely put myself in. Remember, I've also been gifted the opportunity to go to college. My mm -hmm. parents are paying for it. My mom got me in. And so I remember my dad came up to like go to this meeting with the Dean with me. 
And he was like so mad. He just like didn't even talk to me. And I was like, mm. I've really fucked this up. Uh, and so I ended up withdrawing from the school to avoid expulsion essentially. And cause I was like not going to be able to continue in housing. And so I went back home to Quincy and I was living in my mom's basement. And it's so funny. Like I look back at this moment and initially I was like actually so annoyed with my parents. I'm like, why'd you make me leave school? I, I could have stayed. Maybe I wouldn't have gotten expelled. You know, mm. like my friends are there, that kind of thing. But then it like dawned on me, like, no, you're 19 and like, you've done this, you're a joke and you're in your mom's basement with no options now. Uh, and I think that was probably the first time that I like recognized that like, okay, I got to take accountability for my life. And I, I want to like not be this totally mediocre person who certainly had the aptitude and, and, you know, the, you know, whatever to, to be successful in something like, I don't want to blow all that. And so I decided I would start by just like going to school locally and like get good grades. Mm -hmm. And so I, I didn't get great grades, but I was like getting B's at this local school in Boston. And it was like satisfying to get my life back on track to a degree. I'm like going to, I was, I was working at a gym. I was like biking at 5 a.m. to the local YMCA to work at a gym. And then I'd like go take classes at this local school. And so I was like kind of doing the things to like get my life back together. Um, but I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And it was around this kind of time for these like a couple of years I was living at home that uh, I began thinking about the military mostly because a lot of my buddies had had left high school. I graduated in 06 and a lot of them joined the Marines and went immediately overseas to the Middle East. And like, there's a part of me that just felt like a calling to go serve. And so I began thinking about it. And it was around this time that my mom, uh, she was like, hey, you should talk to her best friend's two brothers. I knew they were in the military. And my mom was like, you should talk to them. They were both Navy SEALs. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what? Like we have family friends. Yeah. That's not like a common thing. Like (laughs) when someone says they're in the military, you you don't think like, and so they were retiring. And so uh, I'm not going to give their names, but they were like very, very big deal. Navy SEALs that served on, you know, SEAL team six, like the most, Oh, big, big time, like big time. What is SEAL team six? I was never on team six, which is an important distinction for the people that understand how the teams work. I was on what's called a white side team. So all Navy SEALs go through, there's Navy boot camp, there's like a prep school, there's like effectively SEAL boot camp, which is another six months. There's all this advanced training. It takes about two years. And then you become a SEAL, but you're a white side Navy SEAL. And after you do one or sometimes two rotations, so workup and deployment, uh, you can have an opportunity to basically go through a whole new screening process uh, to potentially go to team six. And again, I've never done it, but from the people that I, I have very close friends that have gone over there that are there now, that are there now, it is like Navy SEAL boot camp times infinity, because now you're, you're literally competing against other Navy SEALs who likely have combat experience, who know what they're doing. And on team six, it's a bigger deal than even, I think most people even fully understand, like when America needs to do stuff, those are the people you ask to do it. And you can't it up. You are like 100% successful. Otherwise, you're not allowed to be on that team. It they is, took out yeah. Osama, correct? Oh, yeah. That was team six. Yeah. Basically, the, like the highest profile, the highest stake stuff goes to that team. And so the, the screening process is otherworldly. Like if you are not basically perfect, you don't get to be a part of the team. And so those dudes are like 
superheroes. Is that something that they have to dedicate their life to? Like, I'd imagine having a family and like trying sure. to raise kids. It would be almost impossible going through that sort of training with that. Just being on call, I'd imagine twenty four seven. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I, again, I, since I have not done it myself, yeah. this is very secondary. But sure. from what I understand, uh, they literally have like you know beepers or something, and they're on they're on call effectively. I don't know if it's wow. literally beepers, but that right, is the right. idea. I mean, when there are operations that kick off that are super duper serious a lot of times they're not necessarily known until the very last minute wow. and so these these operators are like constantly needing to be ready to execute insane stuff how many people are on that i actually don't know uh, it's a very small number it's mm-hmm. probably if, if i'm in a ballpark it's probably less than 100 you know they're actually that's operators it. i'm that's a complete wow. made up guess yeah, sure i'm probably wrong <laughs> But it's not much more. I'm probably off, but it's it's a small number of people. And if you think about it, like I think that in total at any given time, I want to say there's like either 2,000 or like 2,500 active duty Navy SEALs across all teams. That includes the white side teams. So, I mean, it's a small number of people it's not to begin many. with. I thought it would be way more. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a small community. I mean, every year the out in Coronado, California, where they do the initial training to become a SEAL, they run five classes a year, unless that's changed. And even though each class will graduate something like 50 people, um, which virtually all of them will go on to become SEALs, a lot of them are actually from other classes that they got rolled out of for injury, for failing something. And so it's not like those 50 people started with their class and finished. It's like over the course of the year, you have all these people that get hurt along the way that keep getting rolled or pushed around. Mm-hmm. And so like the true number of like new recruits that get through is, is relatively small each year. It's like a couple hundred people each year that, that get through wow. it. And it's, when you meet Navy SEALs, is there a certain like, even if you haven't met them in person, like a certain like eye contact or a bond that you immediately have? Now, I'm not comparing this to something that I've done, but I did run cross country in high school. Okay. But it was on the bowling league. That's true. That's true. When people tell me they've ran cross country, I'm like, okay, so you've pushed yourself to a limit, not like the limit, because you guys are like the limit, but a certain limit where you're like, okay, you're you're dying in a run and then you push yourself even further. You know, like I feel like there's a certain like brotherhood there, but obviously nothing, not even 1% of what you experience, I'm guessing, with well, other well, SEALs. I, I think that actually you're, you're really not that far off. I understand that like there's this, even I just did it talking about Team 6, like you're yeah. constantly trying to make sure nobody thinks you're trying to misconstrue things here. Yeah. Um, but I think ultimately all it is, like, when you become a Navy SEAL, really what you've done and what you've demonstrated is you're able to do what you just described, like hit barriers, mental, physical, whatever, and then keep going. And really, I do believe that virtually anyone can do that, but few people will do that. And so what you're describing is really the same phenomenon. It's like if, you ha- if you're someone that has pushed yourself beyond a certain boundary and you, you see somebody else that you know in virtue of being a cross-country runner at a fairly high level, they've done the same thing, there's going to be a kinship there. There's going to be a connection. Um, but definitely with Navy SEALs specifically, I mean, it's, it's actually funny. I'll, I'll go to airports and I'll literally spot one, like, because seals are kind of all over the place. They're traveling a bunch. And I remember I was, like, at the airport in Atlanta, and I, like, spotted a dude from, like, that's so crowded, super crowded terminal, and, like, across the heads of all these people. It was, like, a quick glance. Never met this guy in my life, but I knew immediately he was a Navy SEAL. Oh. I, mean, I don't even know. But there's definitely, like, so a... It's got to be a posture, a body language. There's definitely like something. There, there's also How did you clothes. Did you talk to him? Oh, yeah. We, and it's funny. I walked up to him, and it wasn't, like... Are you? It was like, hey, dude, what team are you on? He's like, well, I'm on this team. I'm like, cool, man. Good to There's see you. There's no way. I swear to God. That, Did that, he that, know who you were? 
just he could tell that I also was a seal. Not that he there's knew this me personally. certain perception. There's something that's like trained. I feel like in the back of your brain <laughs> while you're going through the academy, where you're like so perceptive of being in like public settings. I'm I'm guessing also this translates to like okay, like is this a good guy, bad guy? Like what's going on? Like you know, you're walking through a grocery store and you're constantly like looking around. And is that a thing that that you have? Like Hyper vigilance. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You have this. Oh, yes. So as you walked into this house, by the way, shout out to Caleb Hammer. This is his house. Thank you for letting us <laughs> yeah, use, thanks, Caleb. use your studio, Caleb. Caleb. Were you like looking around and like being hyper observant of all of like everything in the house? I mean, I'm not going to say I walked in and like literally identified every exit, but I definitely took the time to like poke my head around the corner and look around. Is that, that, is, is that a trained thing or have you always been somewhat like that? I definitely was not always like that. That That's definitely more, not, not even trained. It's more like, yeah, I, I guess I guess trained is the word yeah. then because definitely in training, you're instructed to be super attentive to detail. In fact, yeah. that would be, if, if I were to try to like sum up what your instructors through Navy SEAL training really try to emphasize, it's this whole, no, it's not, hey, push yourself beyond your borders or whatever. It's attention to detail in all things. Yeah. Like it doesn't matter how tired you are. It doesn't matter how complicated, how stressed you are. You must pay attention to details like you must. And even the slightest infraction will get you kicked out of training. Not literally yeah. every time, but that's the, the so stakes they're playing. What with. is training like? It's described as the best time you never want to have again, uh, because in many ways, uh, when I look back at the uh, the six month long course, you, so it's you go to boot camp. This is the, the this is the pipeline for the enlisted side, anyway. So not to get complicated, but the bulk of people who become Navy SEALs they enlist, so they they're not commissioned officers. They're like the sled dogs. They're, they're the the workers of of the team. Uh, you got to go through boot camp, which is just typical Navy boot camp. That's two months long. It's in Chicago. Um, I don't know if it's changed, but when, when I went through, there was a, a mandatory preparatory school that you go to immediately after boot camp, where for two more months you stay in Chicago and you train with like literally professional athletes and coaches and Olympic athletes who have been brought in by the Navy to not like beat you up, but to like actually build up your strength, build up your confidence, because that your your next phase is actual like Navy SEAL boot camp. Um, so you wrap up your two two months in, in the prep school and then they send you to Coronado, California, which is, it's so funny. It's like the most beautiful, have you been to Coronado, California? Yeah. It's like the most stunningly beautiful mm -hmm. place ever. Mm -hmm. And like in this like iconic, like idyllic place, there's like the most treacherous military training like ever taking place. And it's very public, you can like watch it. But you go out there and then you go through a few weeks of like what's called indoctrination, which is a few weeks of like, you're not technically in uh, the training yet, but loads of people quit because you're actually working with Navy SEAL instructors and it's very intense. You know, you're being treated really like- What's intense about it? Well, one, you're, you're there. You're at like this storied compound where like, at, by the way, where you train in Coronado is also where the West Coast SEAL teams are. And so you're like this pathetic, like have done nothing. And you wear, you wear a white shirt with your name stenciled on it that like signifies you're, you're a recruit, you're nothing. Mm. And when you go to training, it's like you're literally surrounded by actual like active duty Navy SEALs that they just haze you. <laughs> it's like, so it's an intense place What's to be. What's the hazing like? It's, it's mostly just like, you know, goofing around with you. Like they'll grab you and like make you come over and like give a speech to like the, like they'll literally hey, come over here, talk to these guys. And it's like 10 active duty Navy SEALs and they, like, yeah, introduce yourself. And like you start talking and they start like cutting you off and making fun of you. It's like stupid stuff. Sure. But so it's an intense place to be. And then, I mean, just the, the actual training is, is incredibly difficult. Um, Physically, you know, it's like the, it's famously, it's famously challenging. That's the whole point. They want it to be 
borderline impossible to do so that if you are able to complete the training, you've demonstrated that you can kind of push beyond, you know, what most people would consider an impossible limit. Um, so anyways, you do six months in, in Coronado. It's called Basic Underwater Demolition slash SEAL School or BUDS for short. Um, and uh, if you get through that, you're virtually guaranteed to become a SEAL. Like the attrition rate falls to near zero at that point. Mm. But you have another six months of advanced training and then you go on to... Um, like we went to language school. Manfagat Farsi Harf Bezanam. No, no, way. I can't. I can say that's the line yeah. I can say. <laughs> I, was, I was just about to say, I'm like, you know, that. I can I only speak nine languages, languages, by the way. Oh my gosh. Uh, no, so, but you, you go to like a follow on school and then you, uh, you go to your team and then you go through a whole workup again. So, but in terms of like the actual training, um, sleep deprivation is horrible. It's so bad. What does that feel like? I mean, you lose your mind. Like, really, you actually become an insane person. That's that's the gist. <laughs> there's there's one week of training early on in actual buds. So so, the six months are broken up into three phases. The first phase is called first phase, and it's the gut check. Uh, it's a lot of soft sand running and laying in the ocean when it's freezing cold at night and doing like a billion sit ups and jumping jacks. Um, you carry around this thing called an IBS. It's an inflatable. An inflatable boat, but it weighs like 200, 200 someone pounds. And wow. you and your boat crew uh, have to carry it on your head. And it's not the heavy. It isn't like you put it on your head and you're like, wow, that's, that's so heavy. But you run everywhere with this boat, either by your side or on your head. Think about this running on sand. It's uneven. Yeah. And so the boat's jostling around and it hits the top of your head so often that it, you actually develop a bald spot on your head. Um, guys like will break bones just from the compression of this boat on their head. Like if you fall when you're in the middle of a run, this boat just comes colliding down on you. It's gnarly, like it's a, it's a gnarly thing. So yeah, but I'd say that the worst part is sleep deprivation. Uh, and then there's a week early on in first phase called hell week where you don't sleep for five and a, well, you sleep for a total of like four hours broken up into little naps over the span of like five and a half days. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, so anyways, it's just, it's a, it's a very physically so, grueling. I am so curious, like are, how well are they compensated afterwards as a Navy SEAL? Going through that training, I mean, to be like the top point zero zero one percent, I'd imagine it's like it's got to be like a high pay. Or do people do it just because they they love it? If you look at like the entirety of like the enlisted ranks in the Navy, so all jobs, Navy SEALs, CBs, you know, whatever, um, you are the most well compensated for sure but you're not well compensated. You, you can look it up. I think guys make uh, like 50,000 gross, maybe 60,000 when they get to a team, which amongst like typical enlisted folks that go into a, if, if you show up to your, your first command as like an, an E2 or an E3, it's, it's like an enlisted rank, the junior enlisted rank, you're making like, I don't even know, it's probably like 20 or $30,000 a year. Um, and you have, you obviously get like health benefits and all yeah. that stuff, but within the confines of what the Navy's actually able to give you, they pay SEALs, let's say the best, but it's not like, you're not it's making not a lot of money. You're not, yeah. you're not at all. Um, but then when you deploy, uh, they pay you a whole bunch of money, but that's not really, and, and that's relative. It's not yeah. like a ton of money, but for the military, it's a good amount. You'll make like an extra, I don't even know. I mean, a few, a couple hundred bucks. Yeah, shout out to my, wow. my manager, Nick Witters, who's yeah. off screen. He was shout a Nick. combat vet as well. Thanks, oh, Nick. Um, yeah, so you get paid for deployments. And so if you wow. deploy a bunch, you get more money. But yeah, it's not. It's definitely not something you would do for pay. Um, I think that, you know, I, I think that a lot of people ultimately decide to be SEALs uh, 
because of the challenge of, of becoming a SEAL. It's, you know, it's, I, I tell people that when I ultimately made the decision to want to be a SEAL, you know, it was, it was shortly after I, my mom had said, hey, why don't you meet, why don't you go meet up with our family friends here, the, the Navy SEALs, and I met with them. Uh, it's a funny story, actually, how I met with them. Mm. Uh, I went to this place in New Hampshire where we, we were going to meet, um, and my mom's best friend, uh, whose brothers these were, she has this camp in New Hampshire that's for kids. It's like an art camp, and it's beautiful. There's like little cabins. There's like a little lake, and it's so it's this nice little area. Uh, and just up the road, there's this gravel access road that uh, it leads up to this like ramshackle like plywood hut that's like not in any way like permitted. It's like, a crappy like hut. Uh, and when I was told to meet with these two guys, they were doing like training uh, out of this hut. So this is like the secret like backwoods training center for like tier one operators. And so I like go to this camp and I like go say hi to Susan, my mom's friend at like the camp. The kids were all running around like having their barbecues and coloring. And then I walk up the road like by myself uh, to this to this shack and it's shut. And I can hear inside like the sound of like, you know, intense alpha males like having some conversation like. And I just like open the door and walk in. <laughs> it's all these dudes that are like covered in tattoos, like super jacked, all sitting on like upturned buckets. And it's like, it's just like dirt on the ground. There's like no furniture or anything. And they're just like in a circle bullshitting with each other. And I walk in and they immediately go silent and all of them just turn. And they're like, who the fuck are you? <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm John, I'm, the, I'm here oh to meet God. you guys. But it was incredible yeah. getting to meet, it was all Navy SEALs. And these like active dudes who were like in between their rotation cycles. What was impressed upon me from all of them is this notion that Navy SEAL training offers you this great chance to kind of like reset who you are. Because whoever you were before you became a SEAL gets replaced with the person who becomes a SEAL. No one's going to be like, oh, there's John, like, you know, the guy who flunked out of college. It's going to be, there's John, the guy who became a Navy SEAL. And I loved this idea of, you know, SEAL training is such a meritocracy. It's, it's actually open to lots of people. As long as you're an American citizen and you're in decent enough health. I mean, there's, there's more to it than that. But a lot, just about anybody, just about anybody can go try out. And it's whoever is at the end is, is a Navy SEAL. And, and I love the idea of not only serving, because I wanted to serve, but I love the idea that the challenge and then the kind of great reset that would happen mm -hmm. if I became a SEAL, all my stupidity with college and, and just kind of being a general like flunky would be replaced with something that was honorable and I could be proud of. And I also fundamentally believed that if I could get through the training itself, that I would literally evolve and, well, not literally evolve, but become the best yeah. version of myself. And I do think in many ways that was true. And so, you know, mission do you success. Think, do you think there's a personality trait that's, that gravitates towards that more than others? And what yeah. do you think that is? I, I, it's not so much a personality trait as it's lots of people that show up to training have the same story roughly that I did. Yeah, I kind of screwed around, didn't really do anything out of high school, uh, you know, screwed up college, got kicked out, didn't have a job. You know, no one in my family has a history of being in the military. Just seemed cool. Decided I'd go try out. Like that's like the bulk of people who mm. make it through are that. And I will say that there's loads of people that go to SEAL training that are like super intimidating people. Like when I was in my class, there was a dude who I had like played with in Madden. Like he was a professional mm. football player. I'm like, dude, I've played with you like on a video game. That's like huge hulking wow. like linebacker. Or there's like professional swimmers and professional rugby players and like really incredibly accomplished people. But 
they wash out really, really quickly. And I, I think, and it's something that a lot of people agree with, that the folks that come in that are like, I've done nothing with my life and this is what I want to do. I'm going to reinvent myself. They got nothing to lose because they've never done anything. They've, if they don't make it through training, no one's going to be surprised. They're going to say, yeah, John's a, a ding dong. He didn't get through training. That's not surprising. Mm -hmm. But if you're the professional swimmer, the professional rugby, the professional football player, people expect you to become a Navy SEAL. And as soon as it gets hard, the instructors focus really intensely on the dudes that are really successful before coming in. And they remind them that they, they, this doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you did before. It only matters what you're doing now. And it's like a lot of people can't handle that. And, and also the people that have been massively successful before becoming SEALs, they're not used to failing. I'm generalizing, yeah, but sure. a lot of people, like to become a professional baseball player, pretty good chance when you were younger, you were way better than everybody else and it wasn't even close. And then in high school it was the same. And then in college, you were probably one of the best people on your team. I mean, even the people that get drafted last in like the mm -hmm. MLB draft are incredible baseball players that were way better than everybody else. And so imagine if your whole life you've been the guy, you're always the best at what you did. And then you get to training and you're like, you fucking suck. You are pathetic and you're not gonna make it through the training. The guys that have nothing to lose are like, well, that's probably true, I do suck. I'll just keep on going though. The guys that are used to success, they, they do not handle it well, like mm. consistently drop out really quickly. That is an interesting archetype in the SEALs. And I bet you that that hit you very hard when you had to move back into the basement, because I see this theme of your life of like not taking responsibility, being slightly entitled and just given things. You were given the role of like, hey, I'm the tough guy. You come up to <laughs> yeah. me, I'll beat you up. Like you <laughs> yeah. were given that. Yeah. You didn't have to earn it. You didn't have to fight people. You were given admission into a good college. You didn't have to earn it. Your mom just wrote it for yep. you. And you go to college and you're like, you have this entitled kind of thing. And then all of a sudden you get sent back home. That must've been incredibly hard for you to flip flop as much as you did. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's an element of uh, the entitlement you talked about. Um, I also definitely came to learn that taking accountability mm -hmm. for the things that you've done wrong is actually a very empowering thing because suddenly nobody gives you any crap about it when you're yeah. just like fully owning mm -hmm. your missteps. It allows you to just kind of move forward unencumbered versus trying to hide whatever missteps you've I like made. that. I've noticed that as a theme as well in your video. Like you'll bring up certain things like getting beat up by the dude. <laughs> the fact that you didn't have to earn getting admitted to, into college, like you're very upfront. Like, yeah, it just kind of happened. It's the way to be, just being direct. Yeah. You know? So here's kind of a novel question. Let's hear it. How do you feel when people come up to you and, oh, thank you for your service? Is it like a genuine, like, oh, thank you very much? And you might have to give a diplomatic answer to this. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Or is it like, a, like a, uh, you know, I appreciate it, but it's kind of like, you know, I hear that all the time and you don't know what I went through. Like, what is the, the response to this? Well, one, I, I think that I and virtually anybody else who served would likely say the same thing. I'm sure Nick over there off camera would say the same thing that like we understand that when people come up to us and say, thank you for your service, what they're really doing is just that that's the phrase that we've come up with. But it's mm -hmm. just meant to be like, I, hey, I'm, I, I respect that you volunteered to do that. You know, and like, I'm not really supposed to actually be like, you're welcome, you know. <laughs> right. uh, and so I, I, I think, you know, I. There's not a good response to it, but I definitely appreciate that people, you know, recognize that, you know, I, I rose my hand when I didn't have to, but I also don't take it so seriously that I'm like, and I'm a hero. Right. You better respect me. It's more like, yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. My honor. You know, what was deployment like? Well, I've only deployed twice. Uh, and I say that because in the special operations community, like there are folks that deploy like 
an ungodly number of times yeah. to places that are just the worst places in the world. So just it's important that people understand that my experience with deployments is as minimal as it gets within the SEAL community. I, I did the minimum tour of duty. Sure. Um, but I had, I, you know, I'm not going to get too into detail about what I did, but you know, the, the two places I went was Afghanistan for the first deployment in 2013, 2014. Uh, and then I went to South America in my second deployment in 15, 16. The one thing I will say about Afghanistan is, uh, well, there's context. So when you become a Navy SEAL or really when you become any sort of, uh, person in the military that is a designated combat role, or you have designated combat capabilities, because not everybody does. There are plenty of roles in the military that are administrative or they're legal mm -hmm. or, or whatever. But if you've been trained to like go to war, it isn't that you pray for war. It's that you, you, you hope for an opportunity to actually put your skills to the test. That's, that sounds barbaric, but yeah. it's a very natural thing. Think about it. Mm -hmm. You've been trained extensively to do this. You want an opportunity to do it. When we were given the opportunity because it's a, it's a weird thing with how deployments happen. It's not, you don't necessarily know where you're going to go. And then it kind of, it ends up being like which platoon of SEALs is doing the best. They get the better deployment, which again would be war. And so our platoon was, I think that, I think that we actually were the second best platoon. So we were not up for getting to go to Afghanistan, but there was some issue with their chief on the other side. So we got the opportunity to go. I was so excited about going to Afghanistan for the reasons I said to you, not out of bloodlust, but yeah. out of like, I'm a professional <laughs> Navy SEAL. I want to go do my job. But man, it was terrifying, you know, coming into it because we knew, and I, I can't get into too much what we did, not because I'm so cool, but just for sensitivity purposes, we knew where we were going was a, what they would call a kinetic site. Like there was the opportunity for actual combat because there are people that deploy to the Middle East where they don't necessarily get into any sort of combat. Um, but where we were going, it was kind of like a known thing that you will see combat that will happen. And I remember we were in this, uh, we were doing, doing some training in Nevada leading up to our deployment. And we had just found out that we were going to get to go to Afghanistan. And this is like maybe a couple of months out from deployment. And one of our more senior guys, his name, I'm not going to say his name, yeah. one of the more senior guys who had done several deployments all to Afghanistan and Iraq, he was like, you could see that he was kind of crestfallen. Like you, I remember looking over at him and he's like a big intimidating guy. He was like a leader in the platoon. And it just looked like he was really disappointed to hear we were going to Afghanistan. Uh, and so I, I walked up to him afterwards and I was like, why aren't you excited about this? I'm a brand new guy. Then, you know, mm. I'm like wired to go do these things. Uh, and he's like, because someone's going to die. That's what happens. You go to these places, someone here right now is going to get killed at least one, like every time that's what happens. And he was in no way like a coward. He was just, he's done this before. And I think that was the first time that it dawned on me that like to that point, my whole like journey to be a SEAL was very charmed. I mean, like it's pretty incredible to say, I'm going to be a Navy SEAL and then go through all the training and become a Navy SEAL. There are a <laughs> few moments as fucking unreal as having a Navy SEAL stamp your trident into your chest because you've earned the right to be called a Navy SEAL. It's like, it's unbelievable. But it was like, now I'm seeing the reality of the job. Like I haven't gone and seen it yet, but I'm, I'm seeing someone that's done this before. And they're like, I'm not excited about this. I'd rather go somewhere else. I'll do my job, but that's the reality. Um, I will say, fortunately, our platoon did not lose anyone on our deployment. There were several people hurt, actually, including me. That set the tone for me going into the deployment. I, th I started to look at it more, not uh, scared, but Realistic more realistic. Yeah. yeah. And, um, I remember before I actually deployed, my family was definitely on, on the fence, you know, like worried about it, you know, and I found myself 
going out of my way to reassure them that it was going to be fine. Like, dude, I'm, I'm a trained Navy SEAL. I'm surrounded by Navy SEALs. I'll be fine. What it did is it didn't really allow me to be honest before I deployed about how I was feeling because I was constantly putting on this act of like, everything's going to be fine. But internally, I'm kind of like freaking out a little bit about what we're going to do. And I remember I was one of the first people in my platoon that actually got sent to Afghanistan. They, they, they send you out in waves. They don't mm. want to send you on the same flight at the same time for security purposes. And I arrived in Afghanistan um, with like two other people on my team. So there's like literally two or three of us, I think. And the way it works is you do like a turnover with the team that's, you know, on site. And there's a lot to explain, but basically imagine like out in the middle of nowhere, there's like these HESCO barriers set up. It's not even a real base. It's like a, it's called an outstation where you're, you're on the leading edge. You're, you're basically near the enemy, so to speak. Uh, and we got out there and first of all, just the drive from where we landed at this huge military base, which was like 45 minutes away, just driving to the outstation was like surreal because first of all, there's like, we weren't allowed to slow down because of the IED threat. So like once you get going, you can't stop, which is hectic oh when gosh. you think about what that implies. It doesn't matter what's ahead of you. You have to keep going. Um, and you're driving through these bazaars in, in Afghanistan that are like full of people from Afghanistan naturally who hate you. And they're looking at the cars as they're passing by and they're not scared of you. That's the other thing that you have been in that country for so long. Nobody's scared. They're just staring you down and you're in this like very up armored vehicle and it's very cramped. You got all your, your kit on and we get to the outstation finally. And it was like such a relief to be behind these HESCO barriers. And we met the team we were turning over with and they had been there for six months. These are like seasoned guys. They're, they're getting ready to go home. And all they wanted to do was get these turnover operations out of the way as quickly as possible because they, you have to do a certain number of just like patrols together yeah. to like show them the area and then they get to go home and they're like, we want to get out of here. And so we're going to do an operation tonight. And I'm like, I've never deployed in my life. I'm like so sketched about everything. I arrive at this outstation. My kit's not even set up, my, my body armor and everything. And like literally that night, I remember we we went through this whole mission briefing of like what we're going to do. And it included like being on foot, like wandering in this area where like, they were like, just make sure you carry a knife because it can get hairy out there. And it's like, okay. And I remember after our mission briefing of what we're going to do, which was really just a patrol, but in a very contested area, yeah. I went back to my, it's called a chew. It's like, it looks like a, a the trailer on a tractor trailer truck. And it has like an a AC unit in it. It's really, it's, it's, it's kind of an awful place to live, but either way, I went inside there and I had all my gear on because we're getting ready to step out for this operation in like an hour. And I got down on my knees and prayed that we would not go on this operation. I was certain I was going to die. You know what I mean? Like yeah. not because the threat was so high, but because, okay, now I'm really going to go do the thing I've been thinking about and training for. And it's no longer like a game. It's like the real thing. Um, and as, as it happened, we didn't go on the operation that night. It got canceled, but we did go out the next day and, uh, on many operations, nothing happens. It's like, doesn't matter how contested the area is, you get there and nothing happens. Um, but I would say that over the course of the six months or five months that I was there, uh, we did get into things that very much fit the job description of what Navy SEALs do. And it was a mixture of both exactly what I thought it would be mm -hmm. from just from a training perspective that you do so much training that when you actually are in, you know, a situation where you're using your training, it's just muscle memory and everybody's so good. You're looking around at your teammates and it's like, it's, it's 
gives me chills even thinking about it. Like guys are fearless. They're doing all the right things. Guys that you thought were like maybe a little slow on the uptake of like how to do certain things mm -hmm. when, when bullets are flying, you know, they're pretty good at it. And I remember just being astounded at how well trained we were, which was really confident building. But it was also like, like to say it was adre adrenaline rush is not even close. The first time we like got, got shot at, I remember like being immediately completely out of breath, but I hadn't moved. Like it was like my body had tensed up so intensely that I suddenly was completely gassed. And that's another thing, like in actual situations, you're like, you can become winded really quickly. And, yeah. and, and it, it, the thing that I always think about is I've only done like the one tour where we had, you know, a limited number of actual engagements with the enemy. And I think about these other operators, other SEALs that have been in for like 20 some odd years through the bulk of like the war on terror. And I just, I can't imagine what it would be like to have done back to back to back to back deployments to these combat zones. Like doing one yeah. was like life changing and terrifying and, and all these different things. But yeah, so it was, uh, it was intense. It was were really you, intense. Were you afraid of dying? At first, but that quickly fades. Um, people ask, you know, what did it feel like to be living in a place that, you know, you're kind of in theory, like facing your death periodically. Um, and I will say, and this is probably not unique to Navy SEALs. I think it's more of like a military deployment thing. Um, you, 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 you're not stressed. You, because you're in kind of like survival mode, you automatically, your brain just like filters out everything else that could possibly stress you out. And it becomes just like very simple. You know, it's like I have my teammates who are like my friends. I care about them. I need to eat. I need to sleep. I need to like, you know, train. But that's it. You, you, there is no space in your, your mind. It, it's like you, the idea of stressing about something from back home, it, it's like it doesn't compute when you're over there. You kind of enter this almost like, like primal mind state where it's mm. just very simple. And I remember I, I have, and this is not like a I'm so cool, but like I've never slept better in my entire life than I did after a couple of weeks of being in Afghanistan. Not at first. It was very stressful. But then you enter into that kind of like, okay, like, you, got, you just got to do your job and like support the team and you're just like carefree. It's very hard to come back to reality though. Do you yeah. ever miss it? Sometimes. Yeah. Not, not, not like miss anything to do with like the military operation side, but definitely miss the, the camaraderie and being around my teammates because it's like there, there are a few things that, that come close to what it feels like to, you know, be risking life and limb yeah. with other people in such a like really intense and specific way. Um, and so, yeah, I'd say I, I miss the camaraderie, but I don't miss combat at any way. What was that like to be shot at or to get shot? Oh, uh, well, I never got shot. Yeah. I got shot at, um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I did get hurt on that one deployment, yeah. um, a grenade detonated next to, next to me and the people I was with, um, what hit you? It did. Uh, yeah, I went down this, or not, I, I, I was not a team leader or anything. I was part of a group and we were led down this alleyway and it's the middle of the night. It was after a, a day of a lot of fighting back and forth. Um, and we basically arrived at this T intersection uh, in this fairly urban village uh, where we were anticipating coming to this T like walking down here and coming to this tee where there was this wall and we were expecting to look out across this field and, and see potentially some enemy combatants. We were just going to see what they were doing. But we ended up walking down and we have night vision on, we're walking silently, you know, maneuvering down this alleyway and we get to the wall and just stuff happens. 
the the intel was backwards. They were actually on the immediate other side of the wall versus, you know, 100, 200 yards away. And so we were kind of put into a position where we ran the risk of being heard if we turned around and tried to leave. Uh, you know, your footsteps make noise. They hadn't heard us yet. And so in short, it turned into a an incredibly close quarters contact. And the, the folks on the other side of the wall uh, we believe they were holding grenades with pins out, like literally for this actual moment. In case we get compromised, we're taking them out with us. And they lobbed the grenades right over the wall right after the shooting began. And I remember um, I was like right behind somebody who was engaging them. And I watched like it was in slow motion. It wasn't. But I will tell you, when you literally think you're going to die, you, you does. You get like weird like tunnel vision or something. I remember in the we had a, a drone overhead that was sending down an infrared signal that was like flashing so on night vision you could see this it's like a spotlight imagine if god had a flashlight shining it down on the earth that's what it looks like it's actually bizarre but only on night vision you can see it and it's a flashing strobe and it was like right over us and i remember the flash was like going like this but but in the flash i saw this grenade like i'd see it and it would disappear in the darkness see it in the flash disappear in the darkness as it's like coming over the wall and then it hit my shoulder and i remember like distinctly thinking please let the grenade detonate below my head so that it it'll kill me, but it won't blow my head off and that at least my family will be, will be able to identify me. And so this, again, this happened in like a split second, but it's like, it hits my shoulder and then it fell down towards the ground. And as it followed down my body, I'm like, okay, good. Maybe it'll hit my legs and it'll just take my legs out, uh, hits the ground. And I was able to turn and everybody just kind of turned and, and it, it detonated. Uh, and it just felt like someone took a big handful of rocks and just like threw it at, at my, the back of my legs and my, my back. Um, my sense of what happened there is, or my memory of what happened is completely backwards. It took years to piece it all together. But the short version is I was basically down on the ground, bleeding to death. Um, we're also in the middle of like a very intimate engagement with people on the other side of this wall. Uh, and my medic, uh, who's also a SEAL, uh, he was the only guy who was not directly injured by the frag of the grenade. He was concussed. He was not himself. but under fire like from this close and it's people miss from this close when you're that jacked up on adrenaline so you're not like getting actively shot a million Mm -hmm. times he like began dragging people out uh he literally saved my life he pulled me i i I was in and out of consciousness couldn't put my tourniquet on um you know i was bleeding pretty bad for my leg and he, he dragged me to to cover as much as we could and he literally laid over me and put my tourniquets on and he was like so calm you know he's like hey it's gonna be fine like literally rounds trained for wow crazy yeah Yeah. and so but the crazy part was is it was kind of quiet in the city at the time but once all the shooting started the other fighters in the town they just began like arbitrarily firing like rockets roughly in our direction like they don't care if they hit their own people they're just trying to hit us and so like rockets are coming in and like gunfire is coming in um, and we actually, uh, we had to call, no, I didn't, I'm, I'm down and out for the count yeah. basically, but the guy who's uh, a JTAC, they control, uh, overhead planes and stuff, calling them bombs. They called in an airstrike like 10 feet away from us to like take these guys out. But it was How, like 10 feet away. Don't, don't they explode? And couldn't you get 10 hit? feet might be an exaggeration. It was yeah. on the other side of that wall. So the fragmentation was the wall see through. Was it like a fence or was it, was it like, like a, a concrete? A conc- no, it was like a mud bricks. Okay. You know, so kind of like a cement wall. Uh, but yeah, I, I ended up uh, getting medevaced out along with another guy who uh, his lung collapsed from the frag. But we got medevaced out and I, I literally within like, you know, 48 hours had been pulled from the battlefield to a field hospital. 
And actually, when I got to the field hospital, um, that's the first stop we went after getting medically evacuated. A message had come out to the base where this field hospital was. It was like 30 minutes away, and there was a bunch of SEALs that were stationed at this base, and they didn't know necessarily how badly injured, like me or the guy that was also getting medevaced, how badly injured we were. And so there was like a potential that, in theory, we could be being brought to the hospital and we could already be dead or we might be, we might die, right? Mm -hmm. And so out of like respect, all these SEALs in the middle of the night put on their best uniforms, which nobody had nice uniforms overseas, they're ratty. But like guys put on like the, the equivalent of their dress uniforms and walked into the tent and they were lining the back of this. Like imagine like literally what a movie would do with like a, a field hospital. It's literally mm -hmm. a big tent with all these surgeons with like white suits yeah. on, gloves on. And then in the back behind all the medical equipment was like 30 Navy SEALs in their uniforms, which were all mismatched, you know, because no one brings those. And I remember I got I got wheeled in before I was put under for surgery and it dawned on me that like I didn't know the extent of my injuries. Mm -hmm. I thought that I was going to be okay because I'm like, I'm alive. I got the tourniquet on. Uh, but I saw the looks on, it's a very small tent too. I'm seeing the looks on my teammates' faces and they're in their uniforms and I'm like, oh my God, like I, I, this might be it. I might die in here. And I remember trying to reassure them that I wasn't going to die, but I had no idea. I have no, no idea what's going on. And I remember that they looked at my wounds and they were like, yeah, you were very close. I guess the, the way the shrapnel went into my leg and my back was just narrowly missed fatal. Um, but anyways, I, I, I got shipped to uh, Germany. Uh, I was there for a week and then I was home and in Home Depot, like two yeah. weeks later. Like How do you assimilate <laughs> back into society after that? That's what I, I, I can imagine that nothing is the same. It's like, how do you just go about daily life having just experienced that? Well, I, I actually was talking about this with my wife. Um, I came back and believed very much that I was going to do a, I'd be fine kind of reassimilating. Um, but I, they call it being in the red is the description used for what it's like to come back from a deployment um, where it's kind of like you're still in that almost primal state of living where like you've pushed aside everything else in your life except for, you know, fight, live, you mm -hmm. know, and, and just be on deployment. And so you come back home and it takes a little bit to get away from that, that feeling to become less primal, to become civilized again, but you totally are not aware of it. Even if you've been told, Hey, you know, you just came back from a deployment, you need to calm down. You don't think you are, you think you're perfectly fine, but you're so like wound up. I'm sure you're probably smiling about this. You're, he, he did a combat yeah. tour and it was it in Iraq. Yeah. He's a, he was a, he was a, okay. So I'm going to give Nick a shout out, even though you can't see him. He, he did a tour in Iraq where he was one of the last people to do like manned turret gunning. Now we use remote oh control my gosh, weapons man. on the top. So he was like fully exposed like driving in the most contested and urban parts of Iraq, getting shot at. Anyways, gnarly deployment. Um, we had remote controlled guns in, in an up armored vehicle that was completely bomb proof. So if we got shot at, we were like completely safe. But uh, I was just like really, really mad. Like <laughs> there's a funny story. I, within like a couple of days of getting back to my house in Virginia Beach, I'm like literally limping around. I'm like, I'm like still hurt. And I remember, so we lived in this house that was part of a homeowners association, like an yeah. HOA. You familiar with yeah, how yeah, HOAs very, work? I'm in one. Yeah, so am I. Of course, of course <laughs> you are. Of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know that works, too? <laughs> and, what's uh, that, what's HOAs do? <laughs> <laughs> <No>, I'm kidding. <laughs> and uh, I got back, and my wife, uh, Amanda, she's like, hey, hey, John, just, you know, like, we got an email from the HOA saying that our, our chimney cap is rusted, and we need to, like, replace it, right? And I'm like, 
no, we will <laughs> not. And I called the HOA and I was like, do you have any fucking clue what I've just been through? And you're going to tell me I need to change my chimney cap? And they're like, sir, we don't know who you are. We don't know what you've been doing. You know what I mean? Like, what, how would they know what yeah. the hell I was doing? It was like so like unhinged that I believed that I could just throw it in everybody's face. That like, I served. You're going to be nice to me, you know? Uh, and they still made me change the chimney cap. Um, but uh, yeah, I just was like hair trigger temper for yeah. a while. Um, but then you kind of like just reassemble or you re you get back into it. But yeah. I, I would say candidly, the, the injury, uh, totally changed my desire to want to be in the military. Um, I remember we, I, I did, I was able to heal up and get into another platoon. So do another workup and deployment, but I was like not healthy. I, 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 I so the, the, bl the blast of the explosion, um, it dislocated both of my shoulders and created a slap tear. So just like the shock of the, the, the blast wave, it wow. dislocated both of my shoulders. Uh, but it, so it tore both of my, my labrums, which is like, a, it's a very fixable thing if you get surgery for it. But I didn't have the time to do the full surgery and recovery. I'd miss a rotation. I wouldn't be able to deploy again. And so I got what's called a biceps tendinesis, which is like the equivalent of putting a Band-Aid on your, your torn labrum. Um, but it's like permanent. They cut a portion of your bicep, they pull it out and they staple it or something onto some part of your bicep. I don't even know how it works, yeah. but it's, it's a permanent Band-Aid, uh, which means you, you deal with like pain, but it's more functional. Uh, so I had some shoulder issues. Uh, I still have uh, 26 pieces of shrapnel in my hip and my ankle that are like, depending on the weather, it'll like, you know, it's hard to run, you know, because the pain from the, the shrapnel. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so over the course of the second deployment, uh, I just like deteriorated physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, and I was already thinking about getting out of the military by the time we got back from South America. And I was already talking to like my, my medic and, uh, I forget, uh, Corman, that's like the, the person in the military who does medical. And they're like, look, you know, you were able to de deploy a second time, but you know, we're going to push for a medical retirement based largely on the injury from Afghanistan, which clearly has had ripple effects physically, emotionally, mentally. I, I was a shit show. I was just like not a happy person. And so I got medically retired. Uh, so I don't know, I don't, don't know how I got, got to that award. You got a medal, right? Well, yeah. So you get, you get an award for getting hurt. It, you get a purple heart, which really just means you got hurt. Hmm. Uh, it is an award and I'm not, it, there's, it's, it's, it's definitely one that I'm you know proud to have. I, th I think that technically to get the purple heart, the purple ribbon, I think you literally have to bleed in a, in a war. I think there's like the stipulation is you literally wow. must bleed in a foreign war. Hmm. So it's like kind of gnarly to have a purple heart. So that, that was cool. And yeah, you know, it was honestly the the whole experience now was a was a good one. Yeah. I I feel very well adjusted now, but I've I've done extensive therapy and still still go to therapy to keep myself yeah. right. Was um, it difficult to keep your relationship together throughout all of that? Because I'd imagine you deploying and coming back, it's like how could your partner know what you went through and like psychologically what you had to put yourself through to be there, and feeling like everything in comparison is so dull. Like I, yeah. I would think everything is trivial. After that, yeah, I mean, my my wife is the best. Uh, shout out Amanda. Uh, she she and I got together in college. I actually so the, the to finish off the college story. I I actually did end up going back to the college that I withdrew from. I did a couple semesters locally in Boston, got my grades up. I met the two seals and really found my calling. I'm going to be a seal, but I did finish and I did graduate. But I went back to the first school, UMass Amherst, and I finished out my degree there. Uh, and when I went back, I met my wife Amanda. 
and I actually was telling her, like, I'm going to be a SEAL. That's what I want to do. And she said, okay. And so, like, I, she was with me from, like, the inception of the idea through training, mm-hmm. deployment, everything. Um, so she really understood, like, I guess what she was getting herself into as best as she could. It's a really, really tight group of people. Like, the community of uh, the other SEALs you're with and the, the wives and just the partners, like, it's so, so tight that, like, when you deploy, like, the the significant others all are like constantly in contact. And in many ways they have information about what's going on overseas because we're relaying it to them. So they're actually pretty well kept up to date with mm-hmm. what's going on, which I mean, all the stuff we tell them is okay, <laughs> but, but they, they know what's going on. But you're a different person after all of that experience. Like you said, it's like a whole personal transformation. Yeah, I think you, I think that's right. I think that, uh, I, yeah, I think you definitely do change as a person and it's not, and Amanda I don't, was, she was on board for all of that? Yeah, well, I think that she was, I was a, I was a very, like, angry person for a while. And I didn't, you know, mostly just, like, I was frustrated with everything. Mm-hmm. That was kind of High my strong. thing. Yeah, yeah, very much so. But my wife is just very understanding uh, and always has been. She just understood that I was going through some stuff and didn't really give me a hard time and was just kind of, I mean, like, I, when I came back, I mean, I, I had some serious injuries on my leg and my hip. Mm-hmm like gnarly stuff. And my wife took care of me. She's like packing my wounds. Like I remember I got, <laughs> I got back to the, to the States and they like wheeled me in to like see my wife. And I, I could walk at this mm-hmm. point. It was painful. I could walk and I get, I get wheeled in and I'm, I'm in the most compromising position ever. I'm like on my stomach and like my, my butt cheek is exposed <laughs> because they've just been doing all this like, you know, treatment for me. And my wife's like seeing me for the first time <laughs> she's, and I have this horrible, like long hair, mm-hmm. like I have this shitty beard. And, and she's like, Oh my God. And, and the doctor's like, come on over here. And he's like packing this wound in my, in my butt cheek. And it's yeah. like, it's a significant hole. And he's like showing her how to do it. Cause like, you're going to have to do this. And oh she like nearly gosh. faints as she's like watching this happen. But very dutifully, like from that point forward, like multiple times a day, she was like taking care of my wounds and like bathing me. I mean, she how'd you everything. meet her? Just in college, just uh, through friends. We just connected and I, uh, this, it sounds corny, but like literally within like 72 hours of meeting her, I was like, 100%, I'm going to marry her. That is incredible. <laughs> okay, so we've been talking recently with a lot of different people about different relationship mm-hmm. advice, and a lot of them say, you know off the rip. Like, if you don't know in the first like three weeks that this is someone that, I mean, obviously, granted, there sure. are exceptions to that, yeah. but a lot of the times you can be right if you just know off the rip. I, yeah, is, I actually, I remember telling my friend, I was walking across campus with him, like literally a couple of days after meeting yeah. Amanda. And I was like, this is going to sound extreme, but I'm pretty confident I'm going to marry Amanda. And he's like, what are, you, what are you doing, dude? I'm like, I don't know. I just got a feeling about it. And she, we got married like very quickly. I, I got married before I went to, to Bud's. She got married when she was a senior in college. How quickly wow. did you get married? Like we, we were together for like 10 months or a year, but we got married when she was still in college. And I'm like, you know, 21 years old, 22 years old, and we're still married. Got three kids now, and I'm 35. That's so amazing. It worked. <laughs> that is crazy. Yeah. Wow. Shout out Amanda. Yeah, she's awesome. Su- she's like the opposite of me. Like super introverted, private. Like doesn't want to be on any camera, nothing. Uh, but I, every story that you hear on the internet, yeah. I've run by Amanda. Really? Like she, yeah. Oh yeah. She's a huge part of it. Yeah. So uh, we do want to get onto all the YouTube stuff, and the true crime <laughs> stuff. Sure. But first, I have to ask this question. I was talking with some some Navy pilots, yeah. and they, they worked very intimately with the SEALs. They said that through training, through everything, that it's not a matter of if, it's when you will break as somebody. Is this true? When you, what do you mean by break? By break, by, let's say, give up information, 
or just like like oh. succumb to something oh, where like yeah. like if you're captured do you mean yeah well i mean you go through and, and it's not just a, a seal thing it's like uh did you seer? go through seer school you didn't yeah so seer school is is a school that the military puts on for basically anybody who could potentially be mm-hmm. they were telling captured. us about it yeah, yeah. pilots for sure because uh-huh. they get they eject in enemy territory yeah. you're gonna get captured mm-hmm. Um, and it stands for survival, evasion, resistance, and escape. And it's a really, really like highly choreographed two weeks of training, at least the one that I did. But there's four levels of the training you go through. There's like level one, uh, which is like, you know, it's the most minimal amount of training. Mm-hmm. And then level four is like, we're going to simulate you getting captured and mm-hmm. it's going to feel real. Uh, and they hire like role players that are very aggressive and are very good at playing the role of captor. And you go through like a miserable it's hard so what is that like? so even from a seal you're this saying is like, after seal training you are you oh, are a navy seal you have gone through all the training and seer school was the fucking worst it was the worst <laughs> it was like one what of the worst it that is crazy to hear I, I you know i i think that there's quite a bit that is unfortunately yeah c- you're not allowed to share but I, I i will say the couple things that i can put out there are imagine just like being put in like highly uncomfortable stress positions that no one's doing anything to you. Like you can't quite stand up, you can't quite sit, you can't quite lean over. You know, it's it's a little bit too warm. You know, like that kind of situation. And then like, you know, a loop of like scratching sounds or like high pitched sounds, and then periodically being dragged out and like manhandled. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. Or like, Jeez. you know, we had to um, like sit in a circle on like a hardwood floor, which seems like nothing. Oh, just sit on the ground, right? But for like eighteen hours, don't move. Like you can't move for like, you're sitting like cross-legged. It gets so miserable. So are you now one to never complain about anything? Because the guy sitting right <laughs> oh, no, beside no, no, no. huge complainer. Oh no, you're you a complainer. <laughs> there we go, Jack. Because the I'll guy sitting next to me, I mean, if it's like, you know, 69 venting. degrees in a place, he's like, yeah. oh, it's, it's so cold. Or it's like, you know, no, I, I'm, it's like, so I'm like the yellow memes that it's like, yeah, I survived a tummy ache making fun of men who like, yeah, yeah, like yeah. their wife, meanwhile, is like giving birth and like the guys that got a tummy ache, like I'm the guy with the tummy ache. I'm That's you? Oh yeah. I'm like a shameless How complainer. is that even? But that, that I don't know. It's just probably, probably who I am. And like yeah. I've, I've been through stuff that's like tough and everything, but I still am the person I am. You know, it's like, oh, geez, I don't want to do that. Like, that's horrible. So that's amazing. But yeah, and, and to your question, though, there's actually like tactics that are employed that I'm not going to get into uh, that literally are like a way of deflecting, giving up information that are remarkably silly when you think about what you're doing, but they uh, apparently, because I've never been caught or anything, but they work. And actually one of the most profound things about SEER school, at least when I went through, is they bring in someone who has been a very real POW. And we had this guy that was kept in the Hanoi Hilton during the Vietnam War, who spent like a year in captivity. Oh my gosh. And, and they what, emulate what they've been through? He just told us what he went through. And it was oh. like, everything he said was like, that's the worst thing I've ever heard. And then he'd be like, and then this happened. And you're like, oh no, that's the worst thing that's ever happened. Like every torture technique you can, you can imagine. But like oh. this, the guy's like, you know, his, his spine's crooked, like from what happened to him. But he's like so positive. He's like, come on guys, take this training seriously. You can do it. And we're all just like sitting there like in awe of this person who's been through like the most horrendous experience. So um, it's a very, very good school. Uh, in terms of like what it gives you and mm-hmm. it definitely arms you with i think it would definitely at least prolong until you give something yeah. up but i think that maybe at some point as the, a human yeah. being you might 
he might. I don't know. This might be too much, but I'm curious why his spine was crooked or what. Well, he walked happened. in and he looked like a guy who had like gotten run over by a, a train. You yeah. know what I mean? Like he didn't say, "Hey, my spine's crooked because of what happened." Yeah. He walked in and it was like obvious that he's like unable to move correctly, and he immediately addressed that he's like a lot of the things I deal with now are from being held in captivity, and he's like literally crooked as he's standing there, and so we kind of put it together. Wow. Yeah. So he, he was like, you know, like all his friends were killed and he was the last one. Oh, God. Yeah, how, can, I, can I also ask how he was able to survive captivity for I think he was year? there till like, a, like the, the area was liberated. I think until Americans oh came in. He's a tough in. dude. Yeah, he like, he like he lasted. Is, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was gnarly. So. And that's a, jeez. But yeah, so I, I luckily only had to do the, the training. Never did any of that stuff in real life. How do you make the transition from all of that to then starting the YouTube, YouTube channel stuff, talking yeah. about true crime you know completely random um i uh, i've always been a big storyteller for sure just in my life um and i uh when i got medically retired from the the seal teams it happened kind of abruptly like we knew or i should say i knew that i would be being i would get medically retired i knew it was coming but the date that i would be released from service was not entirely clear and then it was kind of like all of a sudden i was told that actually your date to be you know kicked out of service is like right around the corner like super quick and so i i, I had this kind of frantic like now what do i do like mm -hmm. i you get like a retirement uh you, you you get paid if you get medically retired it's like it's not an, it's not really enough to live on but it's definitely enough to like survive for a little bit mm -hmm. But I needed a job, you know, I needed a civilian job. I got really no sense of what I could do. I mean, as much as, um, you know, people are naturally inclined to think that Navy SEALs bring a lot to the table, and they definitely do, beyond the battlefield, you know, like just as people, it's very difficult to think about how you would translate those skills and experiences to like business, especially mm -hmm. when like when you're in the military and it's not just a SEAL thing, it's a military thing. You kind of live in a bubble. You're living in like the military bubble and you're not really exposed too much to like modern technology. Like as an example, I, I get out of the, the military in 2017 and I didn't understand like what a, a Google Sheet or Google Doc mm -hmm. was. Mm -hmm. And like I, I'm, I'm a, I was a fairly tech savvy person before I went in the military and I like didn't understand like what are, what are, this, what are these sheets, these like Google Sheets that people are sending me and like Google documents and like I did not, none of it made sense but like there's all these like simple things that you don't think would be hard to learn but in the military you have like your own software systems and your own hardware like all the technology is like military mm. you're not touching civilian stuff and so you get out and you're like not only do I have no idea how to talk about what I did in a way that's meaningful or that fits, you know, the job description you're looking for, but I literally don't understand how to use modern technology. And so it was, it was this mess where I just kind of knew that what I would need to do to get a job, and this is all leading to YouTube, don't worry. Okay. Um, I knew I needed to like meet people. And so I was like, oh, I'll network, you know, I'll meet people through LinkedIn or something. Um, and I wound up connecting with this guy named Jordan Selleck, who's this former investment banker turned entrepreneur in New York City. Uh, and I don't even know how we connected, but it was this random, like, he was looking to help veterans and I'm like a veteran looking for a job. And he was this big proponent. He, he believed in networking as like a thing you should do. And I brought up, I was like, I want to meet some people. And he's like, oh, come to New York. I'll, I'll, I'll introduce you to some, you know, 
investment people or whatever, some finance people and whatever, and maybe you get a job out here. And so it, it quickly turned into the, it was a snowball effect where I was like, well, you know, can I bring some of my buddies that are transitioning out of the military as well? And it quickly over the course of like six weeks went from, I'm going to go to New York and meet with Jordan and like meet a few people to like, you know, 15 people on my side, all SEALs that are transitioning or mm. spec ops guys and like a whole bunch of like hiring managers and folks from different industries in New York, like having almost like a conference um, it was like very uh, spontaneous in a way, but it was this really cool thing where like I remember looking out at this like sea of like networking happening amongst elite special operators mm -hmm. and like these elite firms in New York. And Jordan and I were like, this would be a really cool like business, like mm -hmm. create a charity that like hosts these types of events because clearly there's a need for like veterans to like learn how to assimilate. And so we ended up starting this charity called Elite Meet. That was, it, we held these, these events where like elite spec ops dudes, and gals met with business people and they got jobs and it was great. And so ironically, my job became running a job search service, if mm. you will. But we use social media to, to drive attention to both get donations and to get other hiring you know, companies to come to these events. But there was this goofy thing where you know, special operations, soldiers, warriors, whatever, like they are notoriously not willing to promote themselves. Now, I will say there's a huge caveat. There's tons of SEAL content. There's mm -hmm. lots of, but like those represent the minority of people that are like in, out of that community. The bulk of, of folks that are SEALs, for example, will like literally barely ever talk about it. They keep it to themselves. It's like the whole silent professional thing. And it almost goes against like a code of ethics to mm -hmm. even begin to talk about it. And so really there's a challenge getting these guys to self-promote, to like get a job. Even when they're in the, even when they're in these networking events that we're setting up, and so I began using social media to tell stories about either specifically members of these units. I'd get the permission and I would tell a kind of watered down deployment story where there's some sort of like, you know, takeaway that shows that mm -hmm. they're a great leader or something. But it was really hard to get permission from people. And it was just easier if I talked about my own experience and then relating it to how this applies to a wide swath of other special operators that like I'm the representation of the baseline. And so mm -hmm. if you hire anybody, you know, this this story showcases not just what I can do, but what all these people can do. And I was really good at writing these stories like they were like LinkedIn, you know, like little like several paragraphs mm -hmm. long. Um, and so that was when I began thinking about like social media just as a thing. It was like fascinating to me that just telling stories, written stories on LinkedIn could drive donations, like hundreds of thousands of dollars in donations. Uh, and like very big businesses were coming to these events, these like little events we were mm. hosting from social media. And so I, I ended up going off the deep end a little bit with, with social media where um, I ended up not so much posting about how to how to drive attention to the charity, but more like how to build my own personal brand as like a Navy SEAL, like a former Navy mm -hmm. SEAL. And I like broke the, the card, the card, I, I committed a cardinal sin uh, in the SEAL community, which is like aggressive self-promotion, like above and beyond just trying to get a job. Like I was posting stuff on social media that in no way was sensitive information. It was nothing like but it's more patting yourself on the back. Like, look what I did. Sure. Look at me. And it's Love more so like in the SEALs, yeah. it's about yes. the team. And then and think you don't about want it. Yeah. And I'm also like, I did the minimum amount of time you can do mm -hmm. in the teams. And I mentioned earlier, like there are people in the teams that do 20 like years. 20 deployments. Oh. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I'm giving yeah. you my experience from like two little deployments. There are people that have done so much more and I'm on a white side team. I'm not even on, on development group, which is team six. And so it, quickly I became like 
a piece of crap in the eyes of the active duty SEAL community for the stuff I was putting online, where I was like, you know, I, I think I had like 50,000 followers on, on Instagram, all in the strength of like talking about being a SEAL. I thought that I wasn't crossing any lines, but at the same time, I knew that it was like, you know, you're, you're making lots of enemies. And I remember when I started getting messages from people that I served with, like directly, like mm. literally was laying behind a wall taking incoming fire with this person and they're sending me messages that are not anonymous. They're like, fuck you. Don't ever fucking say that shit online again. You're disowned from the community. No. Yeah. And so it was like heartbreaking. So you want to talk about like the humbling moment of when I got my ass kicked in high school, it was nothing compared to like the barrage of hate that I would get nearly every day. What didn't they like? Because I would see it as an outsider and think this is in a way, inspirational for people who might want to get into this. A lot of people would see your story and think, this is a career that I've never considered before, but sure. I think I have what it takes. I want to be able to serve. Um, to me, it, it comes off as something that, that's more so positive, is like sharing these experiences in such a way that, that can inspire other people. So objectively, that's all true. And, if you, and I deleted a lot, of, virtually all of this stuff. If you were to go back and look at all of it, I would probably cringe reading it, but you would not read any of them and be like, I don't get it. You wouldn't, you wouldn't read it and be like, oh yeah, I see that. Because objectively, all I'm doing is sharing real experiences that are my own. I never acted like I specifically was like the leader and I mm -hmm. was the guy doing this. It was always really my actual POV. It was never meant to, to prop me up as being more than I was. But it's almost like if you start kind of pointing at yourself and saying like, I'm the guy, the SEAL teams are just not cool with that at all. Like yeah. you, with, with very rare exception, guys are get like all, all SEALs that are pretty public right now are facing some level of, of hate from the actual active duty community. How they handle it is, is on them. Right. For me personally, I became so depressed. It was so, so I had, I had to leave Virginia. I literally left Virginia Beach where I was living, which is a hotspot for SEALs, mm -hmm. because I would go out and nobody nobody acted inappropriate. No one yeah. like, but I'd see people that I know. I mean, every friggin' Navy SEAL is like here in Virginia Beach, it's a small town, and I'd like get death stares from people that like personally knew me, not like anonymous, like staring me down like at the gym or at the grocery store. And it's like, dude, I can't do this, I can't be here. And so I like fled Virginia and went to Pennsylvania to like literally get away from people that hated me. Um, and then I made the decision, you know, I'm like, I, I'm in a way building a strong brand in the sense that I'm growing my followership uh, on Instagram and across social media. But it's, again, it's all on this, like I'm the Navy SEAL narrative. And I remember talking to my wife and I was like, I can't fucking do this anymore. Like I can't handle the level of hate I'm getting. Like, I mean, really, these are deep cutting things from people that really know you well. Uh, and so I ended up, deleting everything. But I was, I was thinking to myself that I still really loved the, like what social media represented. Um, I loved that, that I loved the idea that anybody could post something to the internet. And in, in theory, it could like go viral and they could become a thing. I really, I just loved that that was a thing. It reminded me in a sense of, of like Navy SEAL training where it's like, you know, anybody can try out to a, to a degree and it's whoever makes it to the end gets it. And so kind of like a shot in the dark, there's a, this, is, this is a condensed version, but mm -hmm. TikTok was becoming a thing right around the time that I was like, okay, I'm done posting about SEAL stuff. I'm giving it up. I'm going to get like a job at you know Panera until I figure out what I'm going to do. Um, 
but I noticed that TikTok was becoming a thing at the beginning of the pandemic. And I was like, well, there's probably not any seals on there. You know, it's probably just like kids doing dances. And then, so I went on TikTok and kind of like, I, I remember I had on my computer, I had these documents, these Google documents that I learned how to use by this <laughs> nice, point. Nice, nice. Uh, and I had this one sheet that had like all these ideas for like types of content I could do and not just for TikTok, but for anything. And it was all like kind of rooted in the military, obviously, or like, you know, patriotism. It was like all kind of stuff that was in the world of military-ish stuff. And then I had this other document that, that had a single word on it that I, I, I always wanted to cover this one, but I just, I couldn't do it. It was like so random and off the wall. I was like, what are people going to think if I do that one? And it just said Dyatlov. Dyatlov standing for the very famous Dyatlov Pass. Uh, there's, are you familiar with the Dyatlov Pass story? Okay, well, when I tell you what I did with it, I'll tell you the story. Okay. And so I remember I, I've deleted all my content, other the military content, and I've just built this brand new TikTok account. And it wasn't literally my first post. It was actually after several very cringy, like I'm doing like all the trends the dances, with the right. kids. Oh, no. <laughs> dude, it was so Where bad. It's like, like, <laughs> and, like things are popping up. Yeah, dude, oh, I was doing all that stuff and I'd like watch it and be like, this so is, bad. is this that good? Was, was it getting views? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. That's even worse. I would just like an adult, like doing these like totally lame, like kid stuff. Like the, the, this one, this one. The worst one I, the worst one I did was the, there was a trend where it was like you do the, the auto-tune voice and you like kind of half sing a story in auto-tune. It's so cringy oh, no. that I can't even replicate it now. But I was doing all this horrible stuff. But finally, it was kind of like, well, you know, I tried TikTok. It's not really working. And I remember I, I, op I opened my computer and I, I happened to have these two Google Docs up. The one of like my exhausted list of like failed content types. And then the one that was just like, it was like unsolved mysteries. And then my one topic was Dyatlov. And I was like, you know what, whatever, I'll just, I'll tell the Dyatlov Pass story. Um, and so the story goes, and this is what I told in a 60 second burst on TikTok. In the 1950s, there were these hikers, these incredibly talented hikers, there was nine of them, um, that were gonna take what's called their level three hiking test, which sounds like nothing. But in the world of hiking in Russia at the time, these are the guys, these are like the professional hikers, okay? These are the people that can like scale Mount Everest. Mm -hmm. And to get your level three is like a really big deal. Um, at the time, in the 1950s, they didn't have cell phones or anything. So to co in order for them to take the test to prove their level three, they needed to go through a fairly treacherous route up into the Ural Mountains, which are covered in snow, very icy and steep. But they, didn't, they can't talk to these hikers while they're out there. And so they, the, the team that puts on the level three test, they, they organize these checkpoints throughout this, this, this stretch in the Ural Mountains that are spaced apart by like several miles. And it's just like random hikers in camps. And at at certain intervals, they would have to reach these checkpoints in order to not only be accounted for, but to prove they're going the way they're supposed to be going. And so these nine young, super athletic, super happy, and it's, this is also very well documented. It was all filmed. There's loads of pictures. They're haunting, by the way. These nine hikers, they take off and they begin this journey into the Ural Mountains and they, they reach their first checkpoint, I believe, and then they reached this mountain pass. And a lot of this stuff is speculation, but it's believed they reached the foot of this mountain and it's all, everything's snow. There's no, mm -hmm. there's nothing. It's like this wide open snowy canvas. And there's this huge mountain that's covered in snow and there's a storm coming. And it was late enough in the day where they either had to sprint basically to get up and over the ridge to be safe on the other side or they had to wait for the next day for the storm to pass. Because if they began going up this mountain where they did need to go eventually and the storm hit or it got too dark, they'd be 
completely like wide open. There's no trees, there's nothing stopping them. Like you never want to be on an open face of a mountain in the middle of a storm. And so they believe that the group, remember, these are highly skilled hikers. These are like the best. Mm -hmm. They decided to make the journey up this mountain and they stopped halfway. They picked the most exposed spot ever. And so the assumption is they, they gambled, they gambled wrong, they had nowhere to go. And so they pitched their camp, these little crappy tents in the middle of this mountain and they weathered the most horrific snowstorm ever. But at some point in the middle of the snowstorm, the hikers were broken up into I think three different tents. This is based on what they found. They cut their tents open from the inside and they left like 75% of their clothes folded neatly inside of their tents. And then they walked out of their tent in a group, almost in a line, and they walked down the mountain where there was this, this gaggle of trees. It was, I guess you could call it a forest. It was more like a, a crops of trees. Mm. And we don't know what they did down there, but three of their bodies were found up in the trees, like naked and like up on the tree. And there were all these scratch marks on the base of the tree to indicate like they had maybe even tried to go up in this, this tree to hide from something that was trying to attack them. Um, then the footsteps continued about a half mile like down, like parallel with the mountain to this cave where they found the rest of the, the hikers and all of them were deceased. But the ones in the cave, they had exchanged clothing. So like the men were wearing the women's clothes, women wearing the men's clothes. Uh, and several of them had pieces of their face. They, they looked like they had been bitten off, like lips, nose, ears. And some of them were radioactive, like their skin was radioactive, their clothes were radioactive. And so they're all dead. And so mm -hmm. there's just no clue what happened to them. At the same time, the Russian military was doing an exercise in the Ural Mountains. And that night, the one of the senior people of, of this military command noticed overhead there were all these strange lights, which coincided with where these hikers were. Like these really, like think UFOs, basically. Mm -hmm. All these lights over the mountain. And he actually called it in that he thought there was potentially another military unit, like potentially an enemy, like operating in the Ural Mountains. And it was officially documented that there were these unidentified objects floating around the area where this all happened. And so when they found out that these hikers were all found dead and there was this sighting, the Soviet government, they investigated and then their conclusion was an unknown, unnatural force killed them. Case closed. And they didn't give any more information about it. It was immediately swept under the rug and no one was allowed to investigate it. It was literally kept under like lock and seal. And then they, they reinvestigated it, ironically, like literally in 2020. And they think that perhaps an ice sh uh, shelf had like broken off and killed some of them. Mm -hmm. And then like extreme hypothermia could have led them to act a certain right. way. Yeah. But like it doesn't explain the radioactivity. It doesn't explain the lights in the sky. It, th there's a lot of things that go unanswered. And so it ends up being this like fascinating unsolved mystery that's kind of stood the test of time. And I told that in a 60 second version with the pictures included, the pictures of the tents are totally bizarre. It looks like they folded up half their clothes and left them in their tent, cut it open, then walked off. Um, but so I, I was at this uh, indoor water park in Pennsylvania with my kids and I shot this little TikTok video with no format. Mm -hmm. I just kind of did a 60 second version. And since we're gonna be in the water park where it's wet, naturally, I wasn't gonna bring my phone. So I post this TikTok and I leave my phone in my room and then I go with my kids, my wife down to the water park, we're having fun. And I come back and my phone is like practically broken. It's got so many notifi notifications popping up on it. The video that I posted had like, you know, 5 million views in like literally a couple of hours. Uh, and I had, everything I'd posted to that point had never gotten even like a thousand or 2000 views. And so it was like mega virality and like all of a sudden, and it was like the, I've always been so fascinated with like 
strange, dark, and mysterious tales. Mm -hmm. And like that story in particular always interested me. And so I was like, oh my God, like this is the coolest thing ever. It has nothing to do with like being a Navy SEAL. It's something that I'm really interested in. And I was like, dude, I'll just, I'll do more of these. And so I, I, I like enacted this like really insane schedule of, I, 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 I posted three stories like that one a day for 30 days which was, it sounds like nothing, but putting together a 60 seconds, dude, it's a beast. It. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you know, uh, but I, it, grew, it grew my TikTok account to like a million followers in 30 days. And I was, at the time, I was very likely one of the, the very few creators that was not doing just kind of typical trendy stuff on TikTok. I was, you could make the case that I was one of the first big storytellers on there. And it just gave me like first mover advantage in a big way. Like TikTok's reaching out to me and like, I got my, my partner and my wow. manager and like, they're all like, Oh, post more content. We'll promote it. And like the account just went huge. It got to like seven or 8 million followers really quickly. And then I, I was doing a, a live stream on TikTok. I was doing that a bunch. And I, I, I guess I brandished a weapon. That's what they told me. The algorithm said I brandished a weapon. I didn't. Yeah. I don't know how that came up, but it, it gave me like a seven day ban. I couldn't, it was the first time from starting TikTok that I couldn't post anything. Um, and I decided that I would shift to YouTube because it's a monetized platform. It's stable and I've wanted mm -hmm. to do longer form content. And so I moved to YouTube and I posted a video that's actually my own personal like ghost story. I have exactly one. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it's barely edited. I literally sat in this room in my house that has the worst acoustics imaginable. It's this yellow, awful back. And then my, my walls are all like mustard yellow. You can like hear lawnmowers outside <laughs> and I, and it's like unedited. I'm just yeah. like sending this story and it went massively viral on YouTube. And it wasn't because of TikTok because I didn't, mm. there was no one going over. This was like YouTube algorithm. You posted something That's and crazy. it went viral. And I think that that was probably the moment. And I, also based on comments, a lot of people were like, who is this dude? Like, what is this? Mm. And it, that was probably when I realized like, okay, the way that I tell stories works for the, for the social media gods, for the algorithm gods. Uh, and that probably was when I was like, all right, full send, just, just do this now. Why do you think people have such morbid curiosities for some of the stories? Cause I listen to them and I have to, sometimes it screws with my mind a little bit. I, I stop listening and I'm like, that kind of <laughs> fucked with me a bit. I, I, I don't feel like more positive. At, like I'm curious about. But, I love it for one, but it's like true crime stuff. Struggles. It's like yeah, I do struggle with it. It's funny. Um, a lot of people that I speak to that are fans of the show or the genre talk about it being their like comfort show, which seems totally backwards because the content literally is like 99% somebody dies in some horrible way. Like that's the gist of the content. But I think that as humans, there is a there is a desire to be frightened in a safe, controlled environment. And what's more terrifying than seeing real people that had something kind of random and abrupt that could happen to anyone happen to them. Someone breaks into their house or they like, you know, they go to some off limits part of a park and like they fall off a cliff or something. It's like, it feels like that could happen to me and I can learn about it and kind of almost live vicariously through this story, but I'm safe. I'm like, my, my guide in this case, me is like telling me like buddy to buddy telling you a story about this horrible thing. And you get, the, you almost get like the thrill of fear and anxiety, but it's not real. It's this, it's the same reason we flock to like scary movies in movie theaters. It's because you want to be scared, but only because it's, it's actually not real, but your brain processes fear the same way, but you're in this controlled environment. So you get real fear, real kind of shot of adrenaline, mm. 
but the comfort of real safety. Um, but I do think it's kind of like a human trait. I don't think it's, I don't think that the, the genre is like been forced upon people. I think that humans have a morbid curiosity and I don't think that's wrong. I think it's part of being human. Do you think that seeing and experiencing obviously with your, your tour, your Navy SEAL yeah. stuff, and then also with like constantly being subjected to all of this like very morbid, very kind of almost like gruesome, horrific stuff. Mm -hmm. Do you think that has any effect on you in general? Sometimes it does, but it's pretty, it's pretty, I, I, I think I stay pretty disconnected from the material when I'm not like doing the job of creating content and being Mr. Ballin. Like when I'm with my kids and my wife, like I'm, I'm just John, I'm dad. It doesn't feel like one world kind of comes into the other. However, I would say when I cover stories that have distinct parallels to my own life and, and my own loved ones, it's really hard to, to like, I barely ever cover uh, content about kids getting, getting harmed because I just can't do it. It's too close to home for me. Um, I also, you know, periodically will cover, you know, I covered the story about this woman who, um, now I'm forgetting her name, unfortunately, but she was this wonderful woman in her 60s. She went hiking. She's like a great hiker, you know, did it all the time for exercise. And she got lost in this park, broad daylight. Like, this is not some gnarly place mm -hmm. like in Pacific Northwest. It's like somewhere in like New Hampshire or something. Um, but she gets lost and being a seasoned hiker, she decides to stay put because she knows someone's going to come look for her. She's got family that knows she's out here. She's going to wait it out. And so she just sets up her camp. She's got food, she's got water and she just sits there. But unfortunately no one ever finds her. And she says she stays there for a month and she didn't know it. She was only like less than half a mile from the trail. Um, but she didn't know she was that close. And over the course of her time in this tent where she really never moved, she, she, you know, she kept a journal of each day mm -hmm. and she was just so graceful, like dealing with what was actually happening, happening to her. She clearly recognized about three weeks into her stay that she wasn't going to be found. And she now was too weak that she couldn't, she couldn't realistically attempt an escape. And so she knows she's going to die. But the way she wrote in the journal was, it was so profound. It was, all of it was for her kids, for her husband. The language was so like positive and reminding them that she's, she's fine. She's safe. You know, she's, no one's going to harm me. I'm going to pass away in my bed. But it's like the grace that she handled the ending with is just, it was incredible. And she reminded me so much of my mom. My mom, it was like, it was, it was like telling a story about my mom dying in this horribly tragic way. Uh, and that one just really messed me up. It stuck with me for a long time and it's not nearly the most gruesome story I've told. It's mm -hmm. just, it, it, it feels like I'm seeing a bit of my life mm -hmm. in this story. And those are the stories that stick with you. The one that kind of messed me up was the one actually, it was like a mall and the guy goes through this one door and gets oh, yeah. sent into this corridor where it's just like, like a catacomb of just all of these different, it's just like cement walls, cement floor, cement ceiling. And he just sits down somewhere in this chair and he never gets found. Yep. That was the one I still think about. I'm like, Jesus. I know. No, that, that yeah, that, there was like, there, there's a mall in Australia that has, it's famous, it's this huge, huge mall and they have like eight miles of like, imagine here's like the, the outline of the mall, pretend it's a perfect rectangle, mm -hmm. like bordering it, but unseen to the public are all these passageways for staff and storekeepers to move around away from like the main walking areas. You can like access your store and whatever from, yeah. from anyways but there's eight miles of it and it's really not patrolled. I suppose there's not much, there's not cameras there. And this guy was senile and he wandered into this area and there were enough doors that were locked around him 
that he just sat down thinking, okay, someone's going to find me, but they didn't. And it was just like, again, just like mm-hmm. so just sad, waiting. you know? And then when he was found, he's like just hunched over on his chair, just sitting there for like a month. Where do you find these stories? I mean, honestly, the, the beginning. So I would say like, call it early 2020 to relatively recently, like right. within the, we, we've, we've professionalized in, in, in a huge way in, in everything now. But for the first like year and a half, two years, I literally was just on, on Google you know, trying to find interesting things to look for. Um, you know, one of the, one of the, the traps that people fall into that cover content like that I do is that there's loads of stuff that's like on Reddit, but it's personal people's stories. And technically it's like right. a copyrighted unverified, thing because yeah. what's well, unverified one, but it's, you can get in trouble for using somebody else's story without permission. This didn't necessarily happen to me, but yeah. it's Reddit is, is a place that people go and find content. Uh, but you really, it's not a, it's not a successful way to find content, but a lot of people do it. It's a little, little sketchy. I, I basically wanted to find news. I wanted to find stories that you could basically, you had public news sources about them. Uh, and that it's a, it's a chore doing that. Like the easy way is you just go to Reddit and you grab some crazy story somebody told. Uh, but early on, I, I really wanted to make sure that I was not going to get sued. And so it just became looking for really obscure news stories. I'm wondering, how do you approach something so delicately, especially if it's something that occurred recently, mm-hmm. when maybe the victim's families are still alive or the victim is still alive, but just you know out of commission or not, not doing sure. well? Like, How do you approach that in a way that doesn't come off as like... In, you know, offensive or something like that. I, I think that there's probably an element of just literally the way I carry myself and my demeanor and the way I speak is, I, I guess it comes off as not disrespectful to most people mm-hmm. listening. And I don't think it's something I'm necessarily attempting to do or like, I put it this way, I'm not uh, telling the story. I'm not putting on an act. I'm telling it the way that I would tell it, which is right. like with respect. It's just, that's the way I would do it. And I think that it comes off very authentically just based on feedback I've gotten, that it does seem like I'm being very respectful of the fact that these are real people involved. Um, so I think it's, I guess, innate. That's just the way that I tell the story. It, it, people think that it's respectful. Um, I also, I do, when, when we're writing these stories, it's, it, we never, we don't want to write a story where my opinion is coming out. Even if it's something that universally we could agree is a bad thing, like, serial killers are bad and they're Mm -hmm. bad people and they've done bad things. But I don't want to tell a story where the focus is how bad they are from my perspective. I want to tell you what happened with that person and you can form whatever opinion you want. And so that is probably one way that it comes off as Mm -hmm. more respectful because it's, if you, if you, if you watch any video that we've put out or listen to podcasts, it's very difficult to find an instance where you can tell how I feel about a particular subject. And that's, that's because the writing is done to be very neutral and the story carries the, the whatever opinion you want to you want to have um, but then you mentioned about how do we handle more recent stories mm-hmm. we do actually try to stay away from stuff that's either developing like that we don't have an answer yet it's ongoing uh, or it literally just happened it's just it's it's tough to sensationalize something that's literally playing out live um, and so when we do that we will reach out to the, to the families, to the victims, like, especially now, I mean, not to like toot our own horn, but we're, we're big enough now where like, if I post a story about someone and it's ongoing, like they're going to hear about it. And so it's pretty routine to post a story and then get feedback from family members and people involved. And publicity on such events could also be beneficial to solving them. 
as Definitely. well. I feel like that could help getting all these eyes on it. Yeah, I mean, we, we not not to some extent, not, we've, we've not done this a lot, but there's been some instances where we've covered a story and intentionally drove viewers to like a GoFundMe page. Mm-hmm. You I know? noticed that. Yeah. yeah, we did one for this, this guy who's a skydive instructor. Saw, oh my gosh, that was a sad yeah, story, man. He flipped himself around and he took the fall and saved the student who was strapped to his stomach. Wow. It, they, they teach instructors this move that you do if you cannot get your chute to open and you're doing a tandem jump mm-hmm. where you basically flip yourself over and you take the fall to try to save your student. And he did that. And he totally saved a student, but he's paralyzed, you know, neck down. Um, so he got loads of publicity at the time. It's this heroic story. Mm-hmm. But this guy has massive medical problems for the rest of his life, and he's not that old. And so I, we told the story, but we preemptively got in touch with him, and we said we want to cover it, and we're going to push people to your GoFundMe page. And I forget what it's at now, but he's probably... We raised like 400 plus. Yeah, like 400. Unbelievable. That's incredible. Yeah. That's the one Andrew cried during. Really? The one I was telling you to listen to, yeah. I got to listen to it. It's a good yeah. one. What does your team look like today? How many people are on it? How is it structured? Well, it's very important to understand the way the business is structured because one of the things that I'm not trying to do is be like the boss because I'm not. I'm a a really good speaker, storyteller. Like on the creative side, I got that down, but I am not really a good manager. I've had experience managing and leading and to a degree I'm decent at it, but it's something that... I'm, I'm, I'm not good at regular communication with people. I'm kind of like, like, uh, bipolar with people. I'm like super cool with you. And then like, I'll like under, I'll, I'll see like one thing that I don't like that you're doing. And now it's like, well, now I don't like you at all anymore. And, <laughs> oh, no. and, and like, unfortunately it's like, that's, that's horrible. Like you can't run, you yeah. can't build a team that way. Uh, and so, uh, I knew that about myself. And so when I, when the YouTube channel was doing really, really well, like early on, I was starting to get like, you know, requests to do sponsored segments and, and all that. And I just didn't really even know what to do. I just like kind of ignored everything. Um, and then I, I, uh, I, I got reached out to by this company called, uh, night media. They do all this talent management. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. 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 I had been approached by a couple other people that were in the talent management space to like be my manager. Uh, and it made sense, you know, I need a manager to deal with these sponsor segments and stuff. And I just, I didn't want to work with anybody cause I'm like so worried about how I'm going to handle like being around these other people. Uh, but Nick, uh, he hit me up and he was like the only dude out of all the people that reached out to me that didn't really have a pitch. Everybody else was like, oh, I can expand your business this way and do this, 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 this. And he was like, hey, dude, like I was in the military too. You know, I don't really know what you need. You know, if you need help, I'm happy to help you. Like, let me know. And I was like, that dude seems cool. And then I proceeded to immediately blow him off completely when he was, he asked me to take a call with him and I blew him off because I was like busy. But then I called him, like cold yeah. called him. Uh, and I was like, I was at that point where, and I'm sure maybe you can relate to this, I don't know, but like I knew that I was, like the YouTube business was a real business, mm-hmm. but it just felt like I was running around with my hair on fire. Like I'm like last second getting uploads done, like so stressed, like just working 24 seven, but making, you're not really getting ahead. You're just like trying to keep the lights. Yeah. You're just Treading trying to keep wire. things. Yeah. yeah. And it was like, I could feel myself starting to slip. Like I was missing uploads and I was like really burnt out. And I like poured my heart out to Nick. I'm like, dude, I don't know you. This is my first interaction with you, but you seem cool but I'm like falling apart here, dude. And I, I have like trust issues with like other people I've worked with. I'm, I'm not good at like leading teams. <laughs> like I'm not good at it. I need someone who can like really step in and, and like do everything else so that I can just do storytelling. And Nick's like, all right, cool, man. 
And like true to his word, like the dude, he's right over there. You can't see him. He's a looks like a Viking to give uh-huh. you a, a, he a visual. I mean, that's a intimidating presence in right there. Yeah, bodyguard, really. Yeah, yeah. literally, he's, he's doubled as my bodyguard yeah. several times. Um, but yeah, no, he uh, Nick is so his background is he's combat vet. Um, he was a lawyer, and he also worked at WME talent mm-hmm. talent management. Mm-hmm. So the best stars in the world. He came over to Night Media doing digital mm-hmm. uh, talent management. He was uh, one of the managers for Mr. Beast, and so he'd like done like the highest level of digital management. Yeah. Uh, and we just like hit it off, and I could just tell Nick had all the skills that I didn't in terms of building a business. And so we went from uh, me, an editor, and a topic finder who didn't even work out. The topic finder was finding like zero topics. So really, it was me and an editor. Uh, to now we have 37 employees. 37? No, is that full time or is that like yeah. some people? What? We have 37 employees. We have. Oh my um, gosh. How many are in the United States? All but two. All, All but, two? but two? Oh my gosh. What in the. I had I, no idea. I would assume it's like you and like five people, max. Well, so there's, there's so. There's. There's. There's a there, lot of facets. There's a lot of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yes. there's a lot of moving. So parts. we have like on the only so the only thing I do is I take scripts that are written and then I work with them to make them sound like me because I have a very particular way I want to sound, and then I tell the story. And the way I tell stories is I like study the story and like embody it, and then I tell it. It's not a I'm not reciting a script, no. you know. Uh, and so that takes up like a lot of time and mental space and like, but that's what I do. I go to my studio and I record stories. I don't do anything else. I have I don't hire anybody. I don't fire anybody. I don't sit on meetings. I don't, I don't do anything. I'm like, I'll, I'm an employee of the company because like, I know my strength. Like I, I know what I'm really good at and I know what I'm not. And Nick came in and he has all the skills to like build a business and he has all the relationships and the drive. And so he, uh, we ended up leaving night media to form our own studio. So Ballin Studios since August, 2022, we formed Ballin Studios and Nick just went, he hired and fired so many people. And now we have like, it's like a world-class team of people. It's, it's, I sat on the first Friday meeting last Friday, the first one in a long time. Yeah. Uh, and like the, fir- the last one I was on, there was like five people on it. And now it's like, there's like 80, all these different blocks of zoom people. And it's like all these like brilliant yeah. people that are like doing these incredible things within our organization. And it's like, yeah, I'm I like noticed you're posting <laughs> everywhere. Like even your Facebook has like almost 4 million people on there. Yeah. So I'm sure a lot of that's like syndicating to all these platforms and yeah. like building these businesses off of it. It's incredible. Yeah, I mean, the thing, the thing that it has, we're still working on, but I think we're pretty good at doing is everywhere things get posted, whether they're being handled by a third party or they're being handled by a team member or whatever, they have to feel like a genuine, like Mr. Ballin post. It can't become like, you know, random crap that nobody, nobody yeah. thinks I'm posting it. They yeah. think somebody else is. And so to do that requires an enormous amount of training. Like you, you don't get to just come in and, oh, hey, write a script or, oh, oh, like do some research over here. Like, no, there's a formula to it. And like, you know, the, right now the, the head of production for us is actually my sister who's, she's, she's a two-time Pulitzer Prize winning yeah. brainiac. She's wow. super smart. But she's developed like a course that people go through just to learn how to like begin to write. You don't even, you're not even a writer yet. You go through three months of 
She's editing you. Reminds you like the seals of of writing. That is impressive. So she's editing you as well as uh, my dad, who also is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. And he was the head of the Spotlight team. So like the movie Spotlight where Michael Keaton's the lead. So Michael Keaton like worked with my dad to like learn how to play him in the movie. Oh my gosh. And so we have these like incredibly talented professional writers and editors that like put our writers through like the Mr. Ballin boot camp. And it's, we've, only hired like a handful of writers after the whole thing and they're so good and the topic finders are so good what i love about your style is it still seems like i'm just talking to you you know what i mean it seems like a campfire story it's very intimate it's not like all this crazy editing all the it's just so real you know what i mean and i think that it fits the theme so well so it's very shocking i like I wouldn't say I'm super shocked because I could could see the views. I could see, you know, how big you are on all these different platforms. So I assume it's a massive operation, but it is still like a little bit shocking. It's 37 people. And you know what? the, the, The thing about the 37 employees is that nobody has, and I'm not just saying this because I'm on this podcast. Nobody has a job that you're like, why, why are you doing that? Or like, why do we have someone do that? Like those positions are gone. Like, you have an opportunity when you come in to work with us to like, we want people to like come in as like an assistant and then have blue sky as it's for, yeah, blue sky. You can become a writer if you want. You can become an on-screen person for a new show. Like no one's stopping you. You got to do the stuff you're responsible for and there's intense training for it. That's all filtered through Nick. Yeah. But like everybody knows that like we are expanding in every direction. I would love to see different offshoots of just like different stories and different segments. I mean, as it is, we, you know, we have uh, bedtime stories, the the amazing YouTube channel that they now are under the Ballin Studios umbrella doing a podcast with us. We just launched that. Uh, It's like top 20 across the board. I think at one point it was top 10. It's kind of hanging around the top 20 mark. Uh, we also, uh, when I say we very liberally, Nick is the one doing all of this. I'm just yeah. staying in my studio telling stories. Nick understands talent yeah. management, having been in it. And so he started a talent management business. So we have like Nexpo and we have Nick Crowley who are being under, they're under our management wing and they're loving it. Like they're, we're helping them hire writers. We're going to researchers. Everybody is actually playing a pretty meaningful role. And there's like department head meetings every Friday and like everybody better come to the table with like what you're doing because it's going to be really obvious if your department's not doing anything. Not that I would know because I'm not on those meetings, but Nick tells me and that's what happens. So you need to do more podcasts. I don't know why you haven't. Like, cause I, I, this is like my first one. Yeah, I know. I I mean, obviously we did research, but I couldn't find enough on you to research. Nice. Like you're still, you know what I mean? I think you as a person to me is more captivating than all the stories. I mean, the stories are great. But I think you as a person, oh, that to me is what's most impressive is like the background of who you are. And I think it makes the stories that much more impactful. Just knowing well, like you. just what makes you tick and your interests and, and the business side and, of things. But it's not only that, but it's like how you met your wife. You knew it was her. And th- like that's also in and of itself something that just doesn't happen. What, like that's super rare. What relationship advice do you have for me who's engaged and Jack who's single? I'm a bachelor. He's to be. You know, I, I actually have something that I said to myself that I still say now, and it seems simple, but I, I, I always say to myself, I will always be good to Amanda. And it's just the simplest phrase, but it applies to everything. Like there's really very rarely a fight that you get into that can't be solved with just stepping back and being like, you know what? I'm going to take the high road and be good to my partner. Like 
when I, when we first got married, like I'm like 22 going through the most stressful training. And it was like the only person I was around when I wasn't training was like my wife. And I was like kind of a, a jerk, you know, half the time because I'm just like so stressed. Mm. And I just like saw like, if that's the path you're going to go, you're not going to be married for very long. And so I, I like literally adopted this mindset of when in doubt, like always be good to Amanda. And like, even now, like I literally say it to myself, if we're arguing or upset about anything, my bottom line is like, that's the person I want to be with. And so why would I like soil it by like focusing on something that's kind of asinine? Was there yeah. something that she did in those first 72 hours where you're like, okay, like that's, that's it. I saw a picture of her. I, I saw, so I, I obviously saw her and I was like hanging out with her, but there was a picture of her. She went to South Africa, like for this like school trip or whatever with the college, like right before we met. And so all her friends that went like went out and like partied and had a great time. But Amanda's like this and totally like motherly person. Mm -hmm. And she found these like little kids that were in South Africa that were like playing at the playground. And all Amanda wanted to do was like, go like hang out with these like little kids and like go pet the animals that were like strays on the roads. So she's just like a very wholesome person. And there's this picture of her where she's sitting on a swing and she's holding this little girl who clearly she doesn't know. It's this little kid that's like flocked to my wife. Uh, and she just like, looks like the perfect mom. I don't know. I was like, that's like, I want, I want that person. I want like that soul to be around my kids. Who's just like naturally loving and caring and just like an old soul, I suppose. And I still like look at that picture all the time. Like, cause that's when I fell in love with my wife is like, I saw that picture and I was like, that's the one. How do you find someone like that? I don't know. I don't know. I, I think it was just luck that I found her. Uh, she was just a, like, a friend of a friend, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I think I got lucky that I met the right person, you know? And I think now, like, you know, it's probably really challenging to meet people, or I should say it's, it's almost like, uh, with the dating apps, you can meet so many people. Not that I, I haven't used a dating app. I met her, you know, normally in college or whatever, but like you have so many choices. It probably makes it really hard to like, mm -hmm. I'm going to stop now because it's the paradox of choice. Yeah. But it, the problem yeah. is you do have to make your decision at some point. You yeah. know what I mean? So you can't just continue to go on new dates, meet new people forever. That, that is something that I'm, I feel lucky to have just met somebody and it worked out. I think that's partially luck, you know? I have a question. Feel sure. free. This, if you want to cut this, let me know. <laughs> if you don't think Amanda looks great in a dress and she asks you, yeah. do you tell her? Oh, no. No way, dude. She, she's beautiful no matter what, you know? <laughs> respect. I respect that. No, she, I, I'm obsessed with my wife. Like, she would look good to me no matter what she was wearing. I want to be at that level. I want to be yeah. at that level. We always get conflicting answers. Some people are like, absolutely. Honesty is 100%. If she, if, if she doesn't look good in that dress, I'm going to tell her. And then she appreciates it because when she does look good and I tell her she looks great, she knows I mean it. Yeah. But well, then some people, they say, it's not the suit that makes the man. It's the man that makes the suit. You there know you what go. I mean? There you go. I, I think that uh, the one thing that's been great about uh, this career path that I'm on now is in a way it's, well, it's, it's, Candidly, it's very isolating being, I'm sure you can relate to this, Graham. I'm mm. sure you both can. Uh, like a, as you become, I guess, more of a public figure within the YouTuber space, mm -hmm. it's, you don't really feel like that's happening. You feel like you're just making videos and like, it's cool. And it's like, you're making a living off of it. And it's awesome. People like know who you are. You like go out and they like know who you are. And it's like so flattering. It's like the coolest thing, but it also like, it, it's very isolating because you're not really, it's, it's harder to relate to people in, in a way. Uh, maybe I just react that way to it. Yeah. Um, but I've found that like, because I met Amanda way before I was Mr. Ballin, like she knows me as John and it's like the purest relationship, you know, it's just me and my wife. And so as like the whole Mr. Ballin thing has grown and I've definitely had some people 
aggressively take advantage of me and like it's there's mm. been some rough stuff I've I've always had Amanda to like mm. be real with me you know I can be completely unfiltered and real with her and it's helped our relationship tremendously that like she's my number one and she knows me for me I'm not Mr. Ballin I'm not a Navy SEAL I'm like the dude she met in college and so it's strengthened our relationship yeah. tenfold how often does she shoot down ideas where you're like I think this is great and she's All like oh like, could you give us an example <laughs> does she have veto power uh, yeah so she she like so we're doing uh, our first live show in a week yeah. actually a week from today um, and all the stories that I've selected for the show have been run through Amanda. And like, she hmm. told me like a few of them, she's like, no, don't do that one. Like that's, no one's gonna like that one. Like, don't do that one. I'm like, all right, yeah. I completely wanted to do that yeah. one, but because you said so, I'm not gonna do that. Um, but definitely story selection. She, okay. I, yeah, if, I, if she doesn't think it's good and she's shameless about being honest if hmm. the story's good or not. Like she'll like literally be like, nah, it's, that's boring. Like halfway through the story. So is it just you internalize the story and recite it to her as though you're filming and then she yeah. tells you if it's yes or no, it's just the concept. So no, I, I like literally will be out in my studio, like researching it and yeah. like internalizing the story. And then before I'll film it, uh, I'll say, hey, man, let me just run the story by you. And I'll literally do like the whole thing. It's not That's like the coolest. I'm not really, the coolest yeah. thing. I would love to be a fly on the wall. So, where you're just, and I just tell her the story. It's like in the kitchen. She just listens and then she gives feedback. That and should it should be a side channel of just you running the stories <laughs> by her. And the stories that don't make it on your main channel should be the There's side many. channel. There's many. There are many. I'm sure they're good, they're but they're just good. not like top tier. Yeah, she's, she's and she'll be very honest. That's, that's, that's good. The key. Yeah. She's very honest with me. And how many of these stories do you tell your kids? Zero. Really? Are, do you let them watch the content or no? No. <laughs> when will you? I don't know. It's a weird thing. Like, it's funny. Like, my oldest, uh, she's eight. Actually, she, oh my God. Yeah, she's a turning eight soon. <laughs> she, um, she's seven now. Anyways, her classmates have, not, not many of them. They're seven. But there have been classmates that when I pick her up, they recognize me and it shows there are seven-year-olds that are watching this content. They oh recognize you? Yeah. Seven-year-olds. Well, I think that my daughter very likely has tipped them off, but they've the looked- parents. Do they think you're like a parents. superhero? I, like, I, they, they walk no, around with you out in I don't public. Think so. oh, I don't daddy, think so. go approach. You don't think so? I don't think so. I Because th my kids, like, they're young enough that they don't really understand what I do. Got it. Ella, my oldest, definitely probably does. She yeah. wants to be a YouTuber and I think that's, that's probably yeah. in part, you know. But like my youngest, Henry, who's three, like he knows like there's such a thing as Mr. Ballin, but doesn't really understand what that is. And like my middle, same thing. Uh, that is so funny. But yeah, no, they, they don't watch any of it. In fact, the live show, they're going to be there for it. And it's the first time they're going to hear any of this stuff. Like they don't, they don't even know what they're watching. So they into. just think like dad's going to come and like tell a story to <laughs> yeah, people. Basically. And it's fine. So at night, every night I, I tell my son a story, but it's like completely fictional. And yeah. it's every, so I lay down with him every night and I say, okay, Henry, what story do you want to listen to? And it's like, a T-Rex story. And I'll tell the story of like Henry and the T-Rex that's like made up on the spot. Like, so he's- So you just oh, yeah, make it all up. Making them all up. There's on the like, spot. Yeah, I just like make story, and I tell my kids stories all the time, but they're like happy, friendly stories, yeah. ponies and princesses and stuff. But I couldn't do that. I don't think I could just make up a story <laughs> on the spot like that. Well, I professionally like tell stories, so that's, that's, that's all I do. There's but a little still, bit of difference. I, I know, but, but there's, there's difference in reciting something that you've internalized versus like making something up on the spot, yeah, it's fictional. Yeah, well, I mean, luckily, it's a three-year-old. It's not going to judge the story <laughs> yeah, too yeah. hard. That's but a good yeah, point. No, inconsistencies yeah. pointing that out. <laughs> so you you haven't picked out a time where maybe you'll be comfortable to share these stories with your kids. I don't know. I mean, you know, it's it's like there's the two parts of my life that we've discussed at length, like the the Navy side and the YouTube side. They really don't know much about it all. 
mostly because I, I probably am over sheltering them to some degree. Like they know dad was in the military at one point, but like, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, they don't know what a Navy SEAL is. They don't know what war is, you know? Uh, and similarly, they don't really understand that like the world is a scary place and horrible things do happen. And that's what's covered on YouTube. And I think that like, I'm probably resistant to the idea of like, I don't know, showing them the reality of, of the world. Not that like my YouTube videos are like, that's the world. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that's the worst part of the world. That's not the world. But yeah, I think I'm just, I'm just a little protective of my kids. I do wonder, is it important for people to know about the evil that exists in this world? Like, Definitely. is it important to understand that you can go out and something bad can happen to you to contemplate your own mortality, to know you could be driving and someone can just come and hit you in the car and like, like, do you think that it's important that people don't live in some sort of state of blissful ignorance, but they're aware that bad stuff happens? Yeah. I mean, I think that from a, I don't know, vigilance standpoint, I think it's important to not be totally naive. If you're out in a public place, you should be aware of how to leave that place. You should be aware there are probably people in the in the crowd that might want to do you or your family harm. I mean, it, it's, that's, that's life. So I think that like you, you shouldn't be like, at all times thinking someone's going to kill you. But I think that the reverse of that is is far worse. If you think that everything is sunshine and rainbows, you're wrong. Interesting. You're in, that's not the world we live in, no matter what you think uh. it is. When you go and sit down at a restaurant, I've heard of this thing where mm-hmm. like you can't have your back facing the door. Is that true? I, I, or is that a bit <laughs> over like... Well, I would say the people that I know that have done numerous like intense deployments... Uh, are much more likely to have that kind of a, I guess, tick of some kind. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's universal. I, I, I would say that if I was given a choice, I'd probably opt to be able to see an exit, but I wouldn't be like, oh, I can't sit here. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's probably not me, but there are definitely people that act that way. I mean, if you if you are on edge because you've seen some stuff that's like screwed you up, whether that's military or in your life, I think it's natural to see the exit and that makes you feel comfortable. Why do you think you did such a good job assimilating back into society where a lot of people go down the path of alcohol, drugs, destructive behaviors? Sure. Well, I didn't. I, I, I didn't do a good job. I, I went to extensive therapy for yeah. a long time and, and, and that literally saved my life. I mean, I was I when I got out of the military when I was medically retired, I was really struggling with identity, like with my, now that I'm not a SEAL, what am I? Um, and then I, I, tr- I went into the, I'm going to be the token Navy SEAL online and do all this content oh, that man. makes me, I'm getting all this hate from like my literal, what I thought were my best friends. That was, <laughs> that's deep cutting stuff. I was so depressed. I was miserable and depressed in like 2018. It was like the lowest point of my life. Um, borderline suicidal like that that was how bad it got but fortunately um, I I actually was I was I had these like flashes of anger all the time like completely like random like things that shouldn't make you upset or make me mad and it stood out enough to friends and family they're like dude like you got some issues you got to go see somebody Um, and so I did I I, I went and saw therapist um, outside of the military and I will say, and I'm not, I'm not shilling for anything right now, but like therapy works. Uh, and it's not just something you do when crisis hits. It's something you should be doing preventatively. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so like, I, I would consider myself incredibly well-adjusted now, but I absolutely still speak to someone because it's like, that's part of your health, yeah. you know? So I, I, I think I was able to pull myself out because I had friends, family support. I had a professional therapist. I think that's the reason. I hope I'm not prying, but how are those relationships now? With, with those the, the Navy guys? Yes. Horrible. 
Still. Destroyed, gone. Oh. Have you ever tried to mend that, or is there no point in that respect? No. To just leave that? You know, it's one. Of the, I, I think that now enough yeah. time has passed since I was posting the stuff that ultimately triggered the reaction I got. Like, it, it's been so long, and and dude, I this is the first time I've spoken about my military stuff publicly in like years, and this was frankly even watered down. Um, so I don't think that these people necessarily are holding vendettas against me. I think a lot of them probably forgot, don't even care because it didn't affect them personally. It was like, oh, screw that guy. Um, but, uh, no, I, it, th- frankly, it's, it's a, it's a troubling part of my life that I, I have people that at one time I would have literally died for and who would have literally died for me that I am, I don't talk to at all. Like people that meant an enormous amount to me that are no longer in my life. And yes, I'm sure I should probably be the one to, to reach out and do, and I've done that with a couple people, but it's painful to, to even br- mm. breach that. I think that I've just kind of avo- avoided it. And maybe one day, you know, our paths will cross again, but not holding my breath. So I've heard this theory that you experience a range of emotion on a scale of zero to 10. Mm-hmm. And then you get married, and then the range of emotion extends to negative 10 <laughs> to 20. <laughs> and then you have kids, yeah. and then there's no range. It's just negative infinity to infinity. <laughs> As someone who's probably experienced a very intense range of range of emotion while going through the academy at different stages of your life, mm-hmm. would you agree with that statement that even that range of emotion you were experiencing in those hard times paled in comparison to when you became married and when you had kids? I, I would say having kids is the one that does it for me. Uh, the range of emotions I felt were zero to ten in all in all, in all the ways up until I had kids, and then you have kids, and it's like. I can't believe people do this. I can't believe people have like children. This is so much work and it never stops. And mm-hmm. it's, it, there's this funny meme that it was like, like the highs and lows of parenting. And it was like, the lows are, you know, your kids destroy an international vacation and they like, you know, they like break a window at a restaurant or they like, you know, peel over the carpet. Mm. But the highs are like, oh, Johnny caught a pop fly today. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, why do we do this? You know, but it's, 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 it's so rewarding having kids that you just, you, it's funny at the end of the night, my kids all, they go to bed and I always like go into their rooms and like look at them sleeping in their bed. And I'm like, oh my God, I love my kids so much. They're so wonderful. I do. Those are all true sentiments, but it's like, then the daytime rolls around and it's just like chaos, like everywhere. And it, that would be like, there are days that are so stressful that you're like, how? Uh, and so parenting is a, is a tough task. And my, my wife does the bulk of it. So I'm, this is me complaining. Yeah. This, this is my complaining side. Uh, but yeah, no, having kids is, is, a, is a whirlwind to say the least. I respect your humility. I would say that's a, a theme that I've seen through this entire thing is your Thank vulnerability you. and your ability to acknowledge the fact that like you messed up yeah. certain times in your life and you messed up bad. Yeah. And uh, I respect that. I think a lot of people could, could take note of that and learn from that. Thank you. Yeah. I, I would say that that's a conscious thing that I do. It's Not, a conscious thing. It, mm. It's conscious in the sense that I, I think it's important for me to be, I, I can get carried away and, and think I'm really great at stuff and like become very egotistical. But I, the way I, I don't do that is just being real with myself and taking accountability for my missteps and not being afraid to talk about them. Cause I think that it actually makes you a, you come off stronger and more competent when you're willing to be honest about your missteps. And I think that like you, you picked up on it. I'm not sitting here trying to play the humble card, but Mm-mm. it's, it's, it, 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 it makes people respect you and they want to engage with you. They want to be around you because like you're being a human. A lot of people, hide the things that actually 
are the most, they're the biggest parts of humanity, like being a screw up, you know, and mm -hmm. I show mine to the world and I think that that's a good way to do it, so. So you mentioned the live storytelling event. That's kind of crazy you're doing now. Are you, are you nervous? Oh, yeah, that? yeah. So that's something horribly in front of nervous. an audience? <laughs> yeah, no. I, I, that, yeah, one of the questions leading up to this I saw yeah. in the email was like, what, what's your um, values and philosophies in life? And I actually, oh, I, 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 I had an answer planned, I'll tell you. Oh, okay, okay good, because that's something I meant, to, <laughs> I meant to ask you, because you yeah. studied philosophy. I did, I did, I did. But this is actually more just like life experiences led me to have one really specific thing. So in addition to in my marriage, I have the mantra of I'll always be good to Amanda in my life and the thing that I'm literally teaching my kids is like you got to do stuff that scares you because oftentimes and this is not something I coined but like the best things in life are like on the other side of fear as I think Will Smith said actually in my life the things that scared me the most that I actually went and did like being a Navy SEAL there's so many tests you got to take through SEAL training they're horrifying <laughs> they're like so scary but I did them and I, I accomplished those things and each time you get through those scary test gates it like it your confidence grows like your 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 knowledge and experience grows and i have just become someone that like even if i even if i kind of don't want to do it i'll like push myself to do something that makes me so fucking uncomfortable like for example in a week i'm going to step on stage with a mic in front of 1300 people 1300 people <laughs> and, and tell stories that's, that's a lot of yeah. people it's in front of 1300 yeah. people it sold out paramount theater downtown you austin you sold wow. it out yeah it's but good, it's, it's but, a good idea yeah, yeah. Are you, is it just you oh yeah i i literally i told nick and my team i said it's important for the first show to be all on me. I don't want a highly produced wow. show. I want yeah. it to be like, give me a mic and a stage. Obviously, you know what stories you're going to tell oh, yeah. everything. And you've rehearsed this, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, so no. How do you feel about that? Oh, I mean, terrified. But that's why I'm doing it. Like, literally, that's the reason. I, I am scared to do a big public speaking event, so I'm doing a big public speaking event. But it's, it's, it's impressive. I'm, I'll, I'll be psyched about it when it's done. Right now, I'm like, what, what the fuck? I mean, you've I been through so into? much already. <laughs> to me, this seems like this would be an easy thing. It's like, oh, yeah, it'll I be great. Run a it'll be great. It'll be great. It'll be good. And, and there, there is some truth to that. I think that, like, you know, in my moments of insecurity about this event, because I've known about this for months and months, yeah. you know, I do remind myself that I have literally done things that are life and death at times. Yes. I've, I've gone through the breach, you know. Uh, and I've also done, I've done public speaking, not a lot of it. I've spoken like 50 people like a couple times, but. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think that like a lot of stuff that scares us is, is actually not nearly as scary as it seems. And, and I think that that's what I'm almost addicted to is like, I like doing things that other people assign a high level of fear to mm -hmm. or a high level of risk to, you know, like I'm literally drawn to those things. And I think, I think naturally, I think it led to some bad behaviors when I was younger. I was drawn to stuff that was like risky, but in yeah. a bad way. But then as I kind of course corrected my life, I, I began gravitating towards these challenges and things that like were terrifying or, or carried a high amount of risk with them, but I just wanted to do them. But like in my brain, it's a combination of, I don't want to fucking do this at all. And that's why I want to do it. And so I'm totally torn at all times. And then as soon as I do it, like I have to find a new thing to do. That's also scary. And so that's, that's just, that's how I'm wired. Uh, and I've been able to harness it to help grow, you know, my end of the business. Um, and I'm preaching it like, like crazy to my kids. Like we go, we water parks are a big thing. Yeah. Our, that's our, our, our vacation or water parks. And my oldest is like obsessed with slides, like water slides. She's always on YouTube, like watching different slides, mm. like in Dubai or whatever. But then we get to the parks and she's like super nervous about all the slides. You know, she, she like, she seems really confident yeah. to get, and she doesn't want to do it. And I'm like, 
you got to do things that scare you, buddy. You got, you got to do it. And she'll like say it to herself. She's like, yeah, I got to do things that scare me. And she'll do the slide. And it's like, sh- at the end, she's like glowing. Yeah. She's like, I can't believe I did that. And huh. so it's like rubbing off on her, you know? I think public speaking is like the most common fear. Oh, people, people are like, I'd rather die than speak in public. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, yeah it's, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm not a public speaker. I am a, in a studio by myself mm-hmm. speaker, but. Oh, you're going to do great. Oh, thank you. I heard a quote that was turn nervousness and anxiety into excitement because they're very close emotions. Yeah. But excitement just has like this positive over and undertone. True. I think that like, I think it was like Michael Phelps, maybe. Was it him that I said it? I think so, because someone asked him, how are you able to stay so calm given like the stakes of what you're doing? And he was like, well, I just, yeah, nervousness and excitement are kind of the same emotion. Mm-hmm. And my coach tells me to just like turn your nerves into excitement. And that's what I do. And it's like, really? So it's that simple. Mm-hmm. But it's like, that's why you're a world-class Olympic athlete, because you can do that. Not everyone can do that, you know? So. Hmm. I don't think I can do that. I think I, I ride the fear train. <laughs> doing it. <laughs> I just do it anyways. Yeah. Ball and management. Is that something you'd like to talk about? Yeah, I touched on it briefly. Yeah, we, we have a couple of creators that we're managing that Nick uh, built out ball and management. The analogy I give, uh, and I've given to Nick, and he's used this, is like, if, you, if you're playing, if you, I, I use ba- base, I'm a big baseball fan, by the way. Oh, cool. Me too. Yeah, huge baseball fan. Uh, so if you're a really good baseball player and, and you can go pro, you want to go pro. You want to you play for like, you know, whatever your best team is. Like for me, the Red Sox, like if I, if I'm like the best collegiate baseball player, like I'm not going to be like, I'm going to go to like, you know, some random country and go play baseball Mm -hmm. there. No, you're going to go to like the show. You're going to go to like major league baseball. That's where you want to be. And so we want ball and studios to become the equivalent of like the Boston Red Sox, but for storytellers, like the, the, the place you want to go, if you're a storyteller and you want to like expand and be the most noteworthy and have the most resources and the most reach, you go to Ball and Studios. And they get access to your like 37P, like, like oh, uh, yeah. assistance on script writing and there like editing. There is an and all enormous that. amount of support that is both current and being built. I mean, Nick is very aggressive about hiring early and like establishing different pockets of people that are ready to support these new people Mm -hmm. when they come in so that when they arrive, it's not like, don't worry, we're going to help you. It's like, here's all your brand deals that, that Nick's already got for you. Here's the people that are going to help you write, research, edit, like what else do you need? Like we'll pay for it, you know, left. And so we want it to be like, you've made it. If you're a Mm -hmm. storyteller, we're the early stages of that, but like that's, we have a very high threshold of quality for everything we're doing, which is why we have super intense hiring processes and boot camps you got to go through because we really want this to be like the creme de la creme of like professional storytelling. Also, in order to really grow up, we need other hosts. I cannot do all the different shows. And so we yeah. need like a, an army of hosts. You know what you need? Honestly, I think a kid's channel where you tell uh, fun stories for kids. Definitely that would do is, is so one well. of yeah, the... For sure. And I think that that's, it's a delicate area because one of the things we've been told by people we've spoken to is like, once you go kid, once you go juvenile, it's very difficult to like keep the brand relevant for adults mm-hmm. that it almost taints the brand for uh, adults. Even, even like a separate channel, separate person, yeah, it's separate It's part of the everything. ecosystem. Really? I would be nervous about a little bit of cross-contamination. Oh, yeah. I mean, okay. it's one of those things that we've yeah. kind of like put on the back burner, but sure. not like we'll never do that. More yeah. like, okay, we'll keep it 18 plus, at least in theory. It, one of the things that it is, is uh, so we have what's called uh, is aspirational. Is that the demographic? Where like, even though the content is absolutely designed for adults. We're not, I'm not telling these stories for kids. They're for adults. 
but undoubtedly kids are watching this content and there's like, there's, I don't know, like coolness to your watch. You watch an R rated movie when you're not 17. Like I've done that. You know what I mean? And so I think that we're actually already capturing a slightly juvenile audience, not kids, kids, but like, you know, teenagers and stuff. Um, if we ever get into like true kids content, I think it would just be a very deliberate move that would be very mapped out, you know? Okay. Well, so yeah, so we have a new show that's coming out next week. Uh, it's the first co-production we're doing with Amazon Music, so through Wondery Studios. So our, our studio has a, a deal with Amazon Music, uh, and so we're doing Medical Mysteries. Uh, it's gonna that's cool. It's very, it'll sound like uh, all of the shows that I do right now on YouTube or podcast, but it'll be themed around medical mysteries. I think <laughs> I actually, you already did one that was a medical video i've seen like basically we we, we have was, touched on some medical stories on youtube you for have, sure. and there was yeah, yeah. one that was like really confusing i forget it like got into her lungs or oh something. yeah gloria chemi- ramirez yes yeah. yes that one was really fascinating that one like had my brain i, I like looked up the thing and all of that stuff like yeah. afterwards yeah no that, yeah so she she went in feeling sick she had she was like uh, terminal cancer and she was doing diy treatments which included rubbing this wax it was like a, a mechanical wax or something you can pick up at the hardware store, like mm. all over her body, which apparently people had said that worked for this type of cancer. And so she was doing that, but then her, her, her organs started to shut down. She got brought into the emergency room and she began emitting this odor, this like garlicky odor. And like the nurses and doctors began passing out in the room with her. Uh, they tried to take her blood, but when they pulled the blood out, it like crystallized inside of the, the tube. It like turned into these white crystals and then, uh, basically turned into this like biohazard, this gas coming off of her body and from the blood samples. The short version is uh, it was this perfect series of events that I don't explicitly remember, but it started with this wax she put on, her skin absorbed it, and then it mixed with the type of treatment she was getting for her cancer, I believe. And it created this like new chemical that is harmless unless it's like oxidized or something. And like the first step that the, mm. the doctors took when they brought her in was to like give her oxygen, you know, because it was just like, it, yeah, it was when she was taking the oxygen, it continually got worse. So wow. like the oxygen me- mixed with this new chemical and created a toxic chemical, but don't worry, it's only toxic if it gets pulled out of her body. And they began tilling her her blood oh, out, and they, wow. they crystallized, and that was the the new what? compound. But don't worry, it's in the vial still; it's okay. But they were like, "What are these crystals?" And they put them on petri dishes, and suddenly you've exposed this chemical to the open air, and it became lethal. That's insane. And so she ended up passing away. I probably got some details wrong there, but that's the gist of the story. It was like all the things that happened in a row had to happen exactly as they happened. Any of the steps that were taken by the doctors at the times they took them there would have been no issue. No one would have gotten, no one would have passed out, no odor, nothing. It was like every little thing had to be exactly right. Like the odds of this happening are basically zero. Wow. So, but yeah, medical, if you're into that stuff, medical I mysteries. I love that episode. Yeah. <laughs> Graham's probably right. anxious because he's got a flight he's got to catch. Flight boards in less than an hour. Oh, so God. Oh, you got to go. I just want to say thank you thank so you. much. This thank has you, been an you. honor. I love your channel. Awesome. I thank love you. it so awesome. much. Awesome. Thank you very right much. And then I'm supposed to remind Jack to. Oh, yes. Okay, get the thumbnail real quick. Let me get a thumbnail. Really a thumbnail. Yeah. yeah. Leave it rolling real quick. Okay, so, so serious. Just leave it.